yours, Kelly? Sean, send the message to is, I'm just checking, is that us live now? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. As long as you don't start singing, Kelly. <laughs> it's just I'm not seeing the room um, this morning, so... Live now. Kelly, can you hear us now? I can hear you now, yes, thank you. Um, Good morning, everyone, and welcome to um, the Committee for Communities meeting on Thursday, the 24th of June. Um, I'm standing in for our chair this morning, who's just running a few moments late. Um, I'm just checking um, for, uh, let me see. So, members, so everyone is clear, I want to advise you that there are due to be three members attending in person. I can't see the room just at the moment, just to confirm that. Um, but we have the following members attending by um, Starleaf, Alex Easton, Fran McCann, Pam Cameron, um, Andy Allen, Karen Mullen, Mark Durkin, and myself, Deputy Chair Kelly Armstrong. I think I've just mentioned everyone there. Um, our chair, as I say, will be joining us. I can't see the room just at the moment to see. Um, I don't know if there's anybody actually in the room this morning. Okay, okay thank you. Sorry, I can't hear you, Janice. There's no one in the room, uh, apart from right. the staff. No problem. I'm sure Paula will be joining you very shortly. Um, just to ask all members <clears throat> of the requirement um, to declare any interest they may have in relation to items under discussion today. Um, if you don't do that now, you can certainly do that um, later in the meeting. Um, on behalf of the chair, I'd like to welcome our new member to the committee, Pam Cameron. We wish you very well in the role, Pam. Um, you've been very lucky to miss the licensing and registration of clubs, Bill, but we'll keep you busy. Um, and I'd also like to extend my thanks and the chair's thanks to Robin Newton for his work on the committee. And I propose, if all of the committee members are happy, um, that we send a letter of thanks to Robin for his time with us on the committee. I'm seeing nodding, so thank you very much, members. Um, members, before um, we move to the next item of business, um, just to take the opportunity to remind you that we have an exceptionally full agenda today with a number of matters arising and now six briefings. Given the addition of the extra briefing on the local government meetings and performance bill, in order for us to get through all the business, I would request that questions are kept short and focused. And when the chair um, does come, she may have to limit the number of questions per member if necessary. Um, perhaps as a committee, then we can work together on our questions to ensure that they flow. Um, but for now, we will take our first briefings on the local government meetings and performance bill. And I believe that we will have Gillie Broadway and Anthony Carlton um, who are joining us this morning. So um, Gillie and Anthony, if they could be brought in once, please. And whenever you're ready, Julie, um, if I could ask you to uh, go forward um, with an update. Um, and just if we're under time pressures, unfortunately, today, I know this is a very important issue, but if I can ask you to keep focused for us, thank you. I think maybe uh, the best thing for me to do is focus on those particular clauses, which were of concern um, on Tuesday. And in particular, Clause 2, if I can explain, the intention behind Clause 2 was to create an enabling power which would allow provisions for remote meetings to be further extended or even made by means of subordinate legislation should this be considered necessary or desirable. And this would have provided the Department with the flexibility to make future regulations allowing councils to hold 
remote meetings or hybrid meetings and continuing to participate in uh, democratic local government. It would also allow the department to react quickly if a similar situation to the current COVID-19 pan uh, pandemic were to ever arise again. Uh, but the Minister has now given her intention to oppose the question that Clause 2 should stand part of the Bill, and has also indicated in the Assembly that consideration would need to be given to whether further amendment was needed at further consideration stage to deal with any unintended consequences of the removal of Clause 2. So if Clause 2 were removed completely, this would mean the Department wouldn't have that means of further extending the provisions on remote meetings other than by primary legislation. And as Assembly elections are due next year, and there's already a considerable number of bills in the legislative programme, it would be highly unlikely that further primary legislation could be made during this mandate. Um, the legislation, which you know, the, the bill, um, if passed, is due to expire in May 2022 or earlier if the Coronavirus Act were to be suspended. And so this could leave a potential gap in cover for remote meetings, should they still be necessary because of any further upsurge in, in coronavirus or any you know, future variants after the Coronavirus Act expires or is, uh, is suspended. So um, given the Minister's intention to oppose Clause 2, but the continuing need to be able to react and to further extend provisions on remote meetings, the Minister would like to explore with the committee whether a further amendment could be tabled to provide an enabling power to extend remote uh, meetings provisions further by way of subordinate legislation and to consider with the committee what robust scrutiny provisions um, you would like to put into that provision and also any other issues that the, you know, the committee had in to close to. Um, clause three, I mean, the intention behind clause three was really, it, it, this was discovered when it, we were looking at the performance improvement duties uh, that would need to be set aside uh, because of the impact of COVID on councils. And it was really to tie up um, sections 93, 94 and make them have a similar flexibility to section 95. Um, if the clause isn't agreed, removing the clause wouldn't necessarily be fatal to the bill. Essentially, what we would have to do then is pick up this issue of um, tidying that up and also bringing forward um, a risk-based management of performance improvement at a later date, whenever the 2014 Act is reviewed. Um, it would just mean if, if it was agreed now, we'd, we would be tidying that up sooner rather than later, but I can understand um, members' concerns because this is one of the provisions that would be permanent. And so, you know, possibly um, if it needs to be put back to a future review, uh, the minister wouldn't, you know, have a problem with doing that. And the other issue then that there was an issue, the other clause that was an issue over was clause five. And that was including the enabling power to allow the department to amend part 12, the performance improvement duties of councils by subordinate legislation, should this prove necessary following further engagement with the local government sector. And if that clause is agreed, that would mean that any future impact of COVID on councils 
the, the department would have the ability to actually, by subordinate legislation, step in and set aside any provisions that actually could be causing problems for councils. I, mean, I should stress that that provision, it only relates to the performance improvement audit of councils. It doesn't relate to, to the um, normal financial audit of councils. And the intention would that it should only be used if absolutely necessary. So really, that would be an update on those three particular clauses. Happy to take questions. Thank you very much. Anthony, are you coming in too, or, or can we go to questions now? No, go, go ahead to questions, please. Thank you. Thank you very much, folks. Um, I appreciate that the other day it was um, a, a bit of a, a change to the procedures. Um, I think I can speak on behalf of all of the committee when we say we absolutely do want councils to have the ability to have the hybrid option going forward. Um, it's vitally important while we're still in the pandemic and whatever we may face coming down the road that those councils do have that. Um, the only thing that was of concern was what was contained within clause two, for instance, it stated that a minister um, would have the ability to decide who can vote, their speaking rights and so on. Um, and that, that caused concern. Um, in clause three, um, the ability to remove, and while you're saying it should only be used in exceptional circumstances, the ability to remove the need or the, the requirement for an audit. You know, you can imagine in political circles, if you have a minister, not that I'm saying our minister would do it, but it's just hypothetical for going forward. Um, if there is a, a minister who happens to be in the same party as a council that happens to have that majority of party and they're not having a great time, they could turn around and go, you know, not could we not go for our audit this year? Um, so it's, you know, the audit, we know the audit still has to have the publishing of it. Um, that was concerning and removing completely... Um, the local government act you know part 12 or close 12 is is concerned so um th that's really where we were coming from the other day but i'm going to hand over to members now um just to see questions coming forward i know that members i'm saying here that on behalf of the committee and i think we're all agreed on it that councils do need to have that hybrid and we'll work with the minister to get that done but it's just if there's any other issues in regards to those those parts where there was concerns about the other day and i'll go to you first Thanks, Chair. Um, I just just to ask um, in relation to clause two, and, and I would assume that given the nature of the ability for the minister to move quickly, um, negative resolution. There, is there any consideration of that being affirmative resolution, or is the same issues applicable in terms of the availability of the assembly? No, we would look at all. I mean, it could be affirmative resolution or draft affirmative resolution. You know, we would work with the committee to. Um, on what would be the appropriate level of scrutiny that uh, the uh, committee would consider necessary. So, yes, I mean, it would be a move to, you know, probably draft affirmative, I would say, which I mean, is the highest standard. Thanks, Julie. And, and was there any particular reason why the department chose negative resolution from the outset? Yes, uh, clause 2 is very much based on what is Section 78 of the Coronavirus Act. So it was simply the same level of scrutiny that is currently in the Coronavirus Act. And that's the reason why. And also because negative resolution gives you um, uh, the ability to lay the legislation if, for example, something happened during the summer recess, negative resolution would have enabled the department to make and lay the legislation, whereas affirmative or draft affirmative 
requires the debate in the Assembly. That was simply the reason for that. Okay, thanks, Julie. Thanks, Cheryl. That's, that's me. Um, I, I know that our chair is back in the room. Paula, do you want me to hand back to you now or do you want me to finish off this section? I don't mind you finishing off this section, but if I can ask a question as well, I don't mind if, if there's nobody else. I know there's nobody with hands up here on my screen. I know you don't get to see that, uh, so you don't, but um, there's Sinead. Sinead has her hand up. I'd probably better have it back to me, actually, because I can see the hands up, so I can. Um, can I just, and thank you, and apologies, there was a, an accident on the M2 this morning um, that affected traffic always, I think, so apologies for that, and thank you, Vice Chair, for taking over. Um, it's just, uh, uh, do you understand the, the, the committee's concerns, um, and with, with um, us not, not having the chance to scrutinise this bill, um, it became problematic whenever we started to look, especially at Clause 2. Most of us all come from a council background. We understand the autonomy of councils. We understand that councils should have that autonomy to make their own decisions. Um, and, and, and it very much looked like that autonomy was being taken away, albeit I know that the, the, that, that was not the intention um, whenever the, this was being done. Um, it's also my concern then around that, that Part 2 and Clause 5 as well. Um, especially around the finance. We know over over recent years there have been issues to do with finance in, in various councils, one especially which I'll not name, uh, and it's just that complete oversight. Um, so I would be worried about that as well, um, and uh, just extremely worried about going forward about us making and, uh, and amending the Local Government Act in any way. That took a great deal of scrutiny to get to where it was. Um, so I think that if, if there are any changes to the Local Government Act, it, it needs to have a broader level of, of, of scrutiny, in my opinion. Um, I know that there will have to be amendments brought back, um, and I, I know that it's accelerated passage, so this committee doesn't necessarily um, have, have a role in scrutinising all of that. And I know you coming along today, um, it has been very good of you to come along today, actually, because you didn't have to. Um, because there is no community, uh, committee scrutiny, but I just ask you to bear in mind um, all of our concerns and in, in, in anything that you are bringing forward in amendments to this. Absolutely. And can I just um, also stress the, the provisions in relation to audit? Their audit of the performance improvement duties of councils. It's not about the financial audit. It's about the performance improvement audit. Okay. Okay. Look, that's fine. Look, I'll bring. I think Sinead's waiting to come in. Thank you, Chair. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks, Chair. Yeah, it just, um, you know, just to reiterate the points you said in terms of most of us coming from a council background. So, um, you know, we do, we do get it in terms of this bill. Um, but my understanding is, well, the, the way I look at it is, you know, things that you wanted, that, things that seemed appropriate in the midst of a COVID crisis, maybe now, I'm not saying we're the other side of it, but, um, Maybe, maybe look a bit, uh, you know, strange to be bringing them through now. So I think maybe that's where, um, and that's a good thing that we're in that place that we're looking back now, saying, God, you know, we can, we, we're not in that position where we have to do this. So, so that that's a good thing. That's a positive. But I think you know we all do want to get back to normal way of working. But the remote working has been good. And as was said in the chamber the other day, there's no reason why our council colleagues can't have have access to that to those mechanisms as well. So I know the minister has said. Um, you know, she hopes this can be a catalyst for that future piece of work. Is that something that you guys are actively looking at going forward, Julie? It would be, yes. And as I say, one of the things is that we would like to explore is the possibility 
of possibly putting in another clause into the bill to allow us to extend uh, remote meetings or hybrid meetings by subordinate legislation, but to look at you know the terms of clause two about what the regulations can cover and come up with you know appropriate uh, provisions and also to look at the assembly scrutiny and what would be the best assembly scrutiny for that. Yeah, no, no, that's fair enough, Judy. Thank you. Appreciate that. Thank you. There's no other members have indicated here on the screen that they want to ask anything. Um, you might have said it earlier, Judy, and I might have missed it. Um, when are we likely to see any amendments? We will try to get those to you as quickly as possible. I mean, today I will um, be speaking to the drafts person uh, about coming up with um, an amendment, taking the, you know, the points that were raised both on Tuesday and today into account. So we will try to get those to you this, you know, before the end of the week, if it's possible. Okay, like that's grand. Thank you, thank you, members. Um, no one else is wishing to ask anything, so I am going to then say thank you to um, Julie and Anthony for this morning. So thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Can I just? Yes, sir. There was a mistake earlier, just apologies to Sinead, I didn't have you on my screen earlier, Sinead, sorry, um, it's to note that Sinead is obviously present, uh, but it's just earlier I didn't see her, it's just when we were taking the apologies earlier, Chair, um, I left Sinead out and that's a terrible omission. How dare you? Shame on you, shame on you. Uh, I know it's Thanks, slightly Kelly. more difficult for you at home to do this than it is for me in the room, so I really do appreciate it. And um, I don't want to go back on your stuff, but just a warm welcome to Pam to the committee as well. And our best wishes to Robin, absolutely. And also, just to reiterate, we have lots to get through today, um, so we're going to have to push on. So, um, moving on then, members, I've just one other item of Chair's business to highlight before we move on to our other briefings. You've been provided with table papers with a memo from the Public Accounts Committee in relation to the report on the Sports Sustainability Fund and PAC's upcoming inquiry into this, which will take its first evidence session on the 8th of July. I would remind you, members, that PAC now has primacy over this issue and will keep us updated of progress and the likely publication date of its report. Um, any comments or content to note? Can I just ask on that? I know the primacy, and to be honest, I'm grateful that there is someone um, looking at this as well. Um, as an outcome of the PAC, I just I'm wondering how that works. So the PAC will do their report, and they will come up with recommendations. I'm assuming that they can't instruct, or can they instruct the department to take any actions? Hold on one moment. I'm going to go to Janice. Uh, this committee can look at that report and then make decisions as to what it wants to do um, at that stage so it'll not be for the PAC it'll be for ourselves no that's that's great thank you very well, much Jenny. I'm not entirely I couldn't tell you exactly what the PAC can do I can check that out but I just know that our committee can then look at the report and decide if it feels any further um you know, actions that that this committee wishes to take at that time, based on the recommendations in the report. Okay, thanks, Janice. Mark, did you want to come in? Uh, thank you. Well, I was going to ask really what what Kelly had asked. Thanks, Chair. But in terms of, I suppose, what actions subject to the PAC report that the committee can decide to, to to take, or what we do next, 
do we have any idea what actions are open to the department to take? And I know I'm speaking before the PPAC report, but, but if there is found to have been money given out that, that shouldn't have been given out, what, what fires there will be to sort of recoup any of that money? Janice, do you know any further detail on that? Um, I, th I think with a, a number of the other funds, this is just talking off the top of my head, there, there, there has been some scope to look at recouping, but I, I don't know with regard to this I fund. And we would need to happened in the Department for um, Finance and, and Economy. <coughs> has, so, we um, can write to the Department and ask them that question, but it is preempting the outcome of the, rep of the report. Yeah. We have to wait. The, I know certainly the PAC will have to do their inquiry first and report back on that. Um, I mean, there is an option, members, that um, we can uh, agree to write to PAC with our key concerns as well. Um, uh, if if that's if, if if members want to do that. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Now, um, the. This, we did have this at our committee meeting on the 1st of April, and um, I know from that meeting, my recollection, I'm going to watch it back, that the committee actually didn't highlight too many concerns at that meeting, um, but uh, we can uh, certainly bring that back to next week's meeting um, for approval of what we're going to yeah. pass on. Go ahead, Sinead. Yeah, Chair, um, I'm just noting the proposal there. I just would have... Um, a wee bit of a concern that we should maybe just let the PSA get on with their work, um, you know, on uh, in, a bit of, in uh, without any interference from this committee. In the first instance, um, you, you stated at the, at the outset there that it is, um, it is with the PSA now. So, you know, I mean, if people want to propose that. That's fair enough. I would just maybe caution that we let the PSA get on with get on with their work independently. Like what we can do is we can our committee clerk can have a chat with PAC to see if that is the, the is the normal thing that, that does happen from committees or or not and we'll bring it back next week. Okay, members? Yeah? All right. I'm gonna move on then to agenda item three, which is the draft minutes. Can I have four members? These are page uh, seven of your meeting pack and they're the draft minutes of the seventeenth of june twenty twenty one. Can I ask are you content with the minutes as drafted? Okay. Great, thank you. Okay, members, I then am going to move to a tabled SL1, which is the Child Support Maintenance Calculation Amendment Regulations Northern Ireland 2021. Members of the Department has asked us to... Go ahead, Chair, sorry. Are there any matters arising out of the minutes? Or? Was there matters arising out of the minutes? Because they were... We're going to do matters arising. We're going to do we matters just... arising after... After this SL1. After we the just SL1. need to clear it, yeah. Apologies. Okay. All right. Um, the department has asked us to urgently, urgently consider this SL1 today to ensure that the timescale for the statutory rule is met. The rule is due to come into operation on the 19th of July. Current child maintenance regulations require that child maintenance liability stop on a date that can vary by up to six days of the child benefit end date, depending on whether children are entered into exams or not after they leave education. And this has led to some underpayments of child maintenance. The purpose of the amendment is to ensure that the rules used to decide when child maintenance liabilities and once children have left education are aligned with child benefit payability provisions. So can I ask members, are they content for the department to proceed to make the rule? Agreed. 
Right, thank you. Okay, I'm going to move on then to agenda item four, which is matters arising. Um, members, you've uh, been provided a page 18 with a departmental response in relation to the timeline <clears throat> of requests for well re for reform mitigations to be included in the executive meeting agenda. Members asked for a copy of the timeline, timeline um, at our meeting last week on the 17th of June. Can I ask members any comments? Thanks, Chair. Um, I think this just further evidences um, the, the attempts by the Minister in, um, in trying to get uh, the welfare medications onto the executive table. And I think, uh, again, we as a committee, if members are in agreement, should write to the executive and highlight our frustration that this has not come forward onto the executive agenda. I, I would certainly hope that it's on the agenda today. Obviously, I, I don't have sight of the executive agenda, but I would hope it's on there today and we, it's not before long that we do see it. We did write to the Executive Office following last week's meeting and haven't received a response yet from the Executive Office. Um, yep, I understand the concerns there. Um, it has been uh, almost weekly since March that the Minister has tried to get this on the agenda. So um, we will try and find out where that response is from the Executive Office. Fra? Thank you very much, and I agree totally. I've raised this a number of times at committee, and had had suggested that uh, we write uh, to to the the the, the executive, uh, raising our concerns. But and I think as a, as a uh, a response to that, I think the minister was right to lay out uh, what difficulties she has had on that, and I think we need to do whatever we can because these are very very important issues and uh, trying to get them through. So I agree totally with what Andy is saying, and we need to pursue this matter. Yeah, okay, thank you. Fra, anybody else want to speak on this matter? Um, certainly we will ask um, our committee clerks to speak with the uh, executive office to see when we're going to get a response on this. Um, so I'm we'll update members when that comes in. Members happy enough to move on. If we can turn to page 19 of your meeting pack, you'll see a response from the Minister for Health in relation to the promotion of physical activity. Activity, I can nearly speak. Amongst young people, the Department for Health leads on a cross-departmental obesity prevention strategy framework, a fitter future for all 21-22. Um, within this, there are two specific outcomes in respect of children's physical activity led by the Department of Education in school and the Department for Communities out of school. The Department of Health has also worked closely with DSC, DFC in the development of the new sport and physical activity strategy for 2020-2030 and has begun to develop a refreshed 10-year obesity prevention strategy which will align with the DFC sport and physical activity strategy. Lots of strategies there. Can I ask members, have they any comments or are they content to note? Mm -hmm. Kelly, go ahead. Uh, thank you, Chair. Um, well, absolutely welcome this letter through from um, the Minister. However, um, from our own Department for Communities point of view, um, there's a lot of funding provided to community organisations to provide youth work. I know that the Department of Education do youth services, um, but I'm just wondering, can we perhaps ask the Department to clarify what act actions or activities do they require applicants to um, include that will um, allow children physical activity? Yep, we can certainly ask that question. Any other comments on that? Are happy to uh, go with that proposal? Yes? Okay, I'm not seeing anybody saying no, so that will be a yes. 
Okay, members, we'll move on then to page 21, where you'll see a ministerial response in relation to changing places. The Minister is aware that the Executive received just under £1 million of Barnet Consequentials in 2020-21 as a result of the £30 million Changing Places Toilet Fund announced by the Chancellor's, or in the Chancellor's March Budget. The Minister is also aware that the Finance Minister plans to launch a consultation on proposals to make it a requirement to put changing place facilities into new buildings of a certain type or size or where relevant works are being undertaken to a building. The Department already delivers the Access and Inclusion Programme that provides capital grants towards the installation of changing places in those venues for which DFC has policy responsibility. Over the last three years, the programme has issued letters of offer with a total value of just over £300,000 towards the development of 12 changing places. The 2021-22 Access and Inclusion Programme, which has a budget of £1.1 million, is currently open for applications. Well, was open until yesterday, actually, the 23rd of June. Um, so, uh, members, any comments on that? Kelly, your hands up. Yes, Chair, thank you very much. Um, as you've pointed out, um, the application deadline was yesterday. Um, I'd be quite keen if there's if all of the money is not going to be spent that um, we write maybe to the department and ask them to extend or to contact, proactively contact those councils to ask them, um, you know, make remind them that this is available and to reopen to ensure that money is spent in changing places toilets because as we all know adults being changed on the floor or older children being changed on the floor of the toilet is no longer appropriate and we need to have appropriate changing places facilities across Northern Ireland. I'd be quite keen that that money is spent on the purpose that it is intended for. I think you're absolutely right because we know when money isn't spent it goes back into the pot again, um, never to be seen. Um, so I think that's um, fair comment. Anybody else want to make a comment on this issue before I move on? No other hands are up. Yeah, uh, Chair, just one thing. We do welcome the progress that has been made on, on this very important issue. And, and this kind of impinges maybe a, a, a bit on health or a, a lot on health as well. And it's great to ensure that these facilities are available and accessible in public buildings. It's just in terms of our hospital estate, it became to know, <laughs> to, to know the, I suppose, the prevalence of change in place facilities across our actual hospitals, because it's it's my understanding and experience that it's it's far 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 from satisfactory, and if these facilities are going to be anywhere, and it's important that they're everywhere or as many places as possible, but the one place that you think they really ought to be are hospitals. No, you're absolutely spot on. I remember doing a little bit of work on this when I sat in the health committee. Um, way back when, and um, asking the department for a full list of changing, or asking asking the health uh, for a full list of changing places, and they had many, most of which were nursing homes and residential homes, um, which the public do not have access to, and it was pretty bad when you saw the likes of any departments or outpatients departments that didn't have, where people would be frequenting, um, that didn't have access to these facilities. So I think you're spot on there. Um, when it comes to the Department for Health, um, they, they have yeah. been lacking on this, so they have for some time. Um, but yeah, I mean, you used to tend they're frequenting, and, yeah. and that's exactly right, Chair, because they're, they're talking with people here with extremely complex yeah. needs who are sadly in and out of hospitals very, very frequently, and, and, and they've seen very little improvement in this regard. 
No, you're quite right. We can ask those questions. Any other members want to make comment on this or we will move on? Okay, we'll move on then to page 23 where you'll see a departmental response in relation to raise research papers on sport. The department highlights that the key issues identified by the papers have a strong renaissance with the findings that have emerged um, from engagement with key stakeholders on the development of the new 10-year strategy for sport and physical activity. The new strategy, which is currently being drafted, will seek to promote greater participation in and inclusion, particularly for women and girls and those with disability, and will look to continue the work that has been ongoing through initiatives, including the Active Fit and Sports Strategy and the delivery of the Active Living No Limits Action Plan. Again, members, any comments or content to note? Intent to note. Okay, thank you. Then can I ask you to turn to page 25, where you'll see a departmental response in relation to the Social Security Claims and Payments Telephone and Video Assessment Regulations. Um, the committee had requested further information on appeals. The response advises that appeals are heard in both public and privately owned venues throughout Northern Ireland, based on the facilities available in each area. Before any venue is confirmed as suitable, as suitable, the appeal service completes a health and safety risk assessment of the location and facilities. These assessments are reviewed on a regular basis. The appeal service arranges hearings at eight different locations across Northern Ireland and will access other venues at various locations as they become available. For example, Oma Library is currently undergoing refurbishment and will be the location for new appeals hub for West of the Ban. Courthouses are currently not available as an appeal venue, which I think we're probably all very glad to hear. In response to a committee query, the department advises that it does not report on people who have had their benefits stopped, only of flows, i.e. those who are no longer in receipt of benefit. Members, any comments you wish to make on that? Are you content to note? <laughs> Kelly, go ahead. Um, Chair, I think you've sort of picked up on what I'm about to ask. Um, the first thing I would like us to do, if possible, if everybody's in agreement, um, in this letter on the first page, number A, the accessibility and DDA compliance, this is exactly what we're going against when we talk about changing places, toilets. Um, disability discrimination um, does not include things like like changing places, toilets. Um, I would like, if possible, because I've been asking for this for quite some time, the appeals service to um, provide to this committee a copy of the accessibility um, report or the, the template that they use um, to decide whether or not a venue is accessible. Um, because I know, for instance, there is an amazing accessibility officer up in the Northwest in Darien Strand District County who has a template that is amazing and I would like to be able to compare the two um, given the fact that this um, about social security claims and payments includes PIP, um, people this should be very clearly spelled out and should go beyond just being compliant with the basics of the DDA. Um, the next thing then I have is that last paragraph where the department does not report on people who've had their benefits stopped and call them off flows. Well, that's just semantics, to be quite frank. Um, there are a number of people who are waiting on appeals who go past the 12 months and their benefits stop because the appeals are taking far, far too long. Um, I think it's very disappointing that um, the department talks about these offflows, these are people and there are people who are having money stopped because the appeal service has taken forever. Um, so 
I'm disappointed with that comment coming through from the department. Um, they should know better. Um, offflows is just semantics. They're stopping people's benefits. There are many different reasons why people's benefits are stopped. And shame on them that some people's benefits are being stopped because the appeal service has gone beyond 12 months before the person has had their appeal heard. I've asked if there's any possibility, and perhaps this committee can ask again, if there's any possibility that 12-month period could be extended for those people whose benefits are offload um, after 12 months um, because the appeals service hasn't been able to take their appeal forward. Okay, look, thank you, Kelly. I couldn't agree with you more, and I think we could maybe ask um, the amount of people that are waiting now over 12 months um, for their appeal to be heard, um, because I know there's certainly, as constituency MLAs, we're all getting this through our offices uh, of, of people whose benefits have stopped through no fault of their own. Um, so I think those questions need to be asked. Um, any other comments or questions on this? Can we move on? Okay, we'll move on then to page 27, where you'll see a departmental response in relation to the relocation of the Model Engineer Society. Um, museums NI capital budget allocation in respect of the redevelopment of the Wall Garden site of Cultura is 150,000 for 21-22. Um, they have confirmed that as soon as... as as it is soon to initiate a former tender process, it cannot presently advise on a specific figure for the Model Engineers Society relocation costs. It remains their intention to support the society with the relocation, and this includes removal of its train apparatus in the budget for the walled garden, garden redevelopment subject to the appropriate pro approvals. I suppose when I read this, I thought this is a little bit more hopeful. Um, than what we have had, albeit um, it's still nothing definite. Um, members, any comment they want to make on this? Kelly, your hands up. Um, yeah, just to say that I'm very grateful to have uh, on a bit of paper somewhere that there will be money um, set aside to help the model engineers um, to move to their new site. Um, disappointing that we don't, still don't know what that is, given the fact that their extension to their um, lease is almost up again. Um, I know that they have found a premises, which is, is great that they'll be moving to. Um, this could be a significant amount of money, and I sincerely hope that um, the museums, uh, National Museums people and the department don't renege on this, or you know they're removing this organisation who have not been able to um, make a profit or, or get a profit um, to cover their costs, and I sincerely hope they will cover all of their costs. Okay, thank you, Kelly. Any other member want to make a comment? Alex, you're waving at me. Yeah, thanks, Chair. Um, yeah, it's, it's a welcome letter that there's something going to be done for them. Um, I suppose it would like probably more reassurance than the letter's actually giving. It. You know, it's £150,000 to do the whole garden, and, uh, you know, a, a proportion of that's going to be used for the removal of the track. Um, well, well, you know, I sort of like to know will that cover costs to transport it to the new location? Um, will it help towards uh, reassembling it in the new location? So there's things like that aren't totally clear, but it's it's a welcome start, and I would like the committee to keep monitoring this if possible. Yeah, thanks, Alex. Yes, I don't think um, I think we they they will continue to keep us updated. I know certainly you guys in that area as well um, who are in contact with the. Um, the Model Engineers Society um, will certainly keep the committee updated as well on any information they're receiving. So, members, if you're happy enough, we'll move on then. Um, to, just, sorry, just, ahead, Chair, 
on that welcome this positive uh, response. We don't know exactly how positive it is yet, but I suppose just to commend my committee colleagues, primarily I suppose Alex and, and Kelly, who've been most vociferous on this issue, and I think it's fair to say that had they not been, and all of us as a committee being supportive of their asks, that, that we wouldn't even have got here yet. You're 100% right, Mark, and we know that this is used by people right across Northern Ireland, you know, who have an interest in this, um, albeit we know it's based in, in, uh, in that sort of North Down uh, side of the world. But um, it, the, the, I know certainly I was being contacted by people in my own constituency who were members of this society. So, yeah, I think I think the committee and especially Alex and, and Kelly have, have worked hard to get this to where it is. So we'll not let it we'll not let it fall off. So we won't. Members, happy enough. We move on then. Okay. Can I ask you then to turn to page twenty-eight, where you'll see a departmental response in relation to gender budgeting. Gender budget budgeting is under consideration by the Gender Equality Co-Design and Cross-Departmental Groups for inclusion in the Gender Equality Strategy, which is due to be published pending executive approval in December, twenty twenty-one. Uh, the department provides funding to support capacity building within the voluntary and community sector under a range of programs. However, there is currently no specific focus on gender budgeting. The gender equality strategy position on gender budgeting will shape any future approach by the department and may highlight a need to support the sector with gender budgeting, which can be considered for inclusion within appropriate infrastructure support programs. Members, again, any comments on that? Are they content to note at this stage? Kelly? Uh, sorry, Chair, just very quickly to say that we were disappointed. Um, if this, if the um, strategy comes out in December 2021, it's very unlikely then that gender budgeting will be considered for the hopefully, hopefully multi-year budget um, coming forward. But this is more than just about the community and voluntary sector. Um, the Department for Communities provides funding for the housing executive. You know, there are many other arm's length bodies and organisations that they provide funding to. Um, I'm just am concerned that the timing of this means that gender budgeting will not be um, brought forward on a formal basis then in the multi-year considerations, something that the department itself needs to take into consideration whenever it's planning its budget. Um, so unfortunately, the times don't seem to be running in sync here. No, it is a bit, it will be, it will be quite late though. The gender equality strategy should have, should have that knock-on effect across all departments. I mean, the gender equality strategy is not just there for the Department for Communities, it's there for every department. Um, and how, how we run and govern Northern Ireland. So it'll be interesting to see um, what they come up with. But yeah, I do get your point. Um, it is quite late in the year whenever they're, they're, the, the finance minister um, will be looking at budgets. Um, but we'll just keep a watchful eye on that. It may come earlier. We don't know. Who knows? Um, any other comment on that? No? Okay. I'm going to move on then to page 29, where you'll see a departmental response in relation to the budget for 21 22. Further to the briefing provided to the committee on the 20th of May, the committee requested more information on the department's vacancies and a summary of the department's bids. A summary of the bids and allocations is provided at Appendix A. 
The response states that the department presently has over 1,300 staff vacancies. Over 55% of the department's vacancies are at the key management grades AO2 and AO1. Um, Northern Ireland Civil Service-wide recruitment uh, competitions for AO2 and AO1 staff were launched in May 2021. A breakdown of the estimated saving and number of posts by each departmental group is provided at Appendix B. Members, any comments or content to note? Content to note? Okay, thank you. All right, members, we're going to then move on to Agenda Item 5, which is a briefing by Unison on supporting people. You'll find this agenda item at page 36 of your meeting pack. So can I ask then that all members are put down into the audience and can we bring in then Joe McCusker and Spade, Niall McCarroll and Sorsha Fanning. Good to see Niall. Okay. Who have we not got? Have we got Speed. Anne? Is Anne not there? No, um, uh, I'll be joining us today, sure. All right, okay, not a problem. Um, okay, then I'm going to hand over, Joe, is it yourself? Are you going to give us a, a briefing? Can I just remind you yeah. that um, you have up to uh, five minutes and then we'll have questions. So if you want to go ahead. Yes, thank you, Chair. Uh, first of all, I'd like to thank the committee for giving you the opportunity today to present on the Supporting People programme. Uh, committee, a major focus of our concern in recent years has been the repeated cuts to funding that have been experienced by organisations delivering the Supporting People services. The Supporting People programme provides vulnerable people with support to live independently in the community, including through the provision of specialist housing or hostels. According to the Northern Ireland Housing Executive, the programme supports nearly 20,000 people every year. And research carried out by the Centre for Economic Empowerment has shown that, these, that for every pound spent on the programme, the public purse is saved £1.90 elsewhere across health, social care, benefits, criminal justice and housing. Newsom believes that the sporting programme is fatal, but has suffered from chronic underfunding, which is negatively impacting on the standard of service delivery and which has significant impact on our members who work in supporting people programmes. We're extremely concerned about the failure to provide an uplift in the DFC supporting people budget. In our discussions with employers in the sector, we've been advised by them that there was no inflationary uplift in budgets for the supporting programme over since 2008. In effect, they estimate this has led to a real terms cut of 30% over the last decade. The current draft DFC budget provides no uplift and the 72.8 million funding for the Supporting People programme. And this will represent the 15th year in which no uplift has been given to the programme. Unions and members work hard to provide these vital services, but they're doing so under increasing pressure and are suffering pay cuts or pay freezes and erosion of their terms and conditions because of the lack of funding. Unions believes that vulnerable people and our members are suffering because funding is not raising the much demand and the increasing cost of providing supporting people's services. In our view, we believe some organisations funded through the Supporting People programme can and should be doing more to ensure their staff have decent pay in terms of the basis of employment, particularly those employers who do not recognise unison for the purposes of collective bargaining. 
And committee, this is magnified during the COVID pandemic and which we're currently going through. A £10 million fund was set up by the Housing Executive to support supporting people providers to cover additional costs and the costs of workers going out due to COVID off sick. However, in our experience, we've received many calls from our workers and our members saying that when they were off due to COVID-related absence, they were receiving statutory sick pay and their full pay was not being covered. That fund was set up and part of that £1 million fund was to cover the cost to ensure that staff weren't financially out of detriment due to being off with COVID. We contacted the, the Minister. The Minister's office has advised that 63 out of 77 supporting people providers claim funding from the COVID fund, uh, which is equated to around a 6.5 million spend. And the question must be asked, if our members were contacting us saying that they were being put on statutory sick pay, what were these providers applying for the funding for and what costs did it cover? However, I'll move on. Since the end of Northern Ireland Executive reform in January 2020, we've been our concerns about the Supporting People programme and the proposed introduction of a standardised rate. Uh, we met with the Minister and we raised our concerns about that. Since then, the Minister has now sought that our officials ask the Housing Executive to undertake a feasibility study on procurement models for the Supporting People programme to look at funding options outside of grant funding. However, no assurances have been offered that provider organisations will be required to pay decent terms and conditions or that any new funding arrangements will be accompanied by robust monitoring and enforcement mechanisms to ensure that workers actually benefit. Unison is seeking these assurances and believe that any additional funding provided for decent pay must be explicitly required to be used for that purpose. We're also of the view that any additional funding our procurement model to fund providers, which we believe is necessary, must be translated into better to pay in terms of indices for workers. And we believe that that should be on a par with NHS workers carrying out the same or similar roles within the NHS. We would welcome the committee, the committee seeking further information from the Department for Communities and the NIHC on the feasibility study on procurement models for working people programme. In summary, we would ask the, the Department for Communities to act to ensure that additional and adequate funding for the supporting people programme, that workers' rights and protections are paramount to delivering the programme, pay terms and conditions of workers equivalent to NHS agenda for change is standard in any future model of procurement and contracts to providers and that robust monitoring and enforcement mechanisms are in place to ensure compliance with funding requirements by providers. Thank you, Chair. Thank you very much, Joe, and thank you for coming in today. And just before we start, I need to declare an interest. Um, as a former member of Unison, um, from whenever I worked in the health service, and uh, who certainly gave us great help um, when we were undergoing Agenda for Change, um, which I'll get to in a wee minute with you, uh, Joe, you, you will know, um, certainly myself and certainly this committee has brought this up several times, whether we're in, uh, in budget speeches or within our, our committee formats about the underfunding. 
um, of the supporting people, the supporting people, and that's that's going way back. And I know Fra's on here as well. I remember it way back on the old DSD committee when we were arguing then about the funding for supporting people. Um, I just want to move. I'll, I'll just move on to the part then about the terms and conditions. Um, I think you're absolutely right. We have people working within supporting people who are doing identical jobs um, to those that are working, for example, for the health service. But yet their terms and conditions and, and their pay, never mind their terms and conditions, their pay is not at the same um, levels as Agenda for Change. And, and we know that the supporting people as well is doing a, a very, very valued specialist job in many occasions um, that the health service couldn't possibly come in and deliver. Um, just then when it comes to that, what conversations have, has the union had then with the funders and with the and with the minister, uh, and when I say funders, I'm talking about the housing executive because I know that's where the money is drawn down from, and with the minister around the the the, the pay and the terms and conditions. Uh, sure. Over the past several months, uh, Jameson has met both with the housing executive and the minister, uh, particularly on this issue in terms of the terms of conditions of workers and ensure that within any future uh, procurement model going forward, that there should be clauses which ensure that the workforce costs are based on agenda for change terms and conditions and workers are repaid. That while we haven't got a commitment uh, from the minister or the executive to do so, we understand that the feasibility study is being carried out by the Northern Ireland Housing Executive. Uh, however, we've been given no details as yet from the executive or the minister on that as to whether actual workforce costs based on future funding uh, would be uh, aligned with the gender for change terms of invasions. Uh, do you know when that feasibility study was done exactly? Uh, we don't know the progress to date. The uh, minister uh, wrote to me uh, in March of this year to advise that she had instructed our officials to be asked the housing executive to carry out a feasible feasibility study. Okay, well, we do have the, the department read straight after you, as you know, on this, so I'll ask those questions. Then, in relation to the statutory sick pay, I know Joe, I'd spoken to you about this before, so I had. So, yeah. can you just explain to the committee just exactly how this works? So, you, we have people who work for supporting people um, who took ill or had to self-isolate or whatever else during the, the, the worst times of COVID and their no. employer put them onto statutory sick pay, yet that employer was claiming um, uh, uh, funding, uh, the, a special pot of funding that was put aside to cover pay. Is that is that my correct reading of that? Yeah, one, one, one information we have is that the 10 million COVID fund uh, part of that fund was for employers to access it to cover any cost of employees who were out uh, due to COVID-related absence, where they could top up uh, their salaries to full pay. Uh, we can only speak from our experience in terms of we, we have members contacting us, hundreds of members contacting us, seeking financial support because their employer had put them out on statutory sick pay. Uh, we have no information, despite asking the minister, in terms of what employers apply to the fund and what they actually use those costs for. Okay, well then, that's certain, so, certainly something I think that the committee um, can ask that question as well, as to uh, who, which employers applied for that and was that used for to pay um, the, the, the gap in, in the, the pay costs there as well. 
Um, so what I would say, sir, in terms of organisations where unions had recognition agreements, uh, the employers did top up their salaries to full pay. Okay. Okay. So well, I mean, we know it's not everybody. We know that there, this mm -hmm. this is likely to be a small amount of people. And then just on the back of that as well, then Joe, um, what it has it been like to retain staff within the the supporting people sector? Um, we know that um, for many of those people that work in that, they could quite easily get jobs within uh, the the health, uh, you know, within the statutory sector. So the good. So have you seen um, because of these lack of uplifts in salary and the lack of parity when it comes to um, people doing the same job in the statutory sector? Have we seen a, 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 a decrease in, in staff employment numbers? Indeed, uh, we have. Uh, with the employers that I have met over the past several months, their biggest issue has been the recruitment and retention of staff. Um, what they are telling us is that staff are starting to leave the service because of the poor terms and conditions. And some are actually seeking work in the health service. Uh, some, because of the demography of the workforce within supporting people, are deciding to retire uh, just on the basis that they cannot work for you know, the, the terms and conditions that they're on and the challenges and the complexities that they're dealing with. Uh, I met with an employer last Friday, uh, and they are having great difficulties recruiting staff, they have a load of vacancies, and the, the double impact of that is that they're now having to spend money and getting agency workers in, which costs more to cover vacancies because they can't recruit. Uh, and that, that is actually, that's the reality of all of this. Um, you know, if we're not paying staff the, the, the proper salary for the job that they're doing and not giving them those terms and conditions, uh, we are going to, we're going to lose them, absolutely. And that, that's just human nature. That's what, you know, anybody would do in those circumstances. So um, I think there are lots of questions that the, the committee can forward on, certainly um, following this briefing, can further on to the department. I've got several hands up. I've got Fra, then Mark, and then Karen. So I'm going to go to Fra first. Bring Brian, please. Uh, sorry, the, the thing was, was stuck there. Uh, I want to, uh, first of all, welcome uh, the members of Unison to the committee uh, this morning. I think you're 100% right uh, that over the years uh, that yourself and myself and others have robustly uh, challenged uh, senior departmental figures and ministers uh, and the whole question of, uh, of supporting people. I think that uh, it's an absolute disgrace uh, that over those years uh, that uh, that the, the the because the people weren't getting an uplift, it was a, a effectively a large cut in their services, and many many uh, organisations uh, were in the verge or went out of business because uh, they, they 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 couldn't get it. Uh, I, I do think all the questions that Joe has raised and that you have responded to uh, that 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 we 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 should. Uh, read off and, 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 and seek answers to it. Uh, but, uh, and uh, we're, we're getting a briefing later on on the neighbourhood renewal. And there, there are North section of employees uh, that are treated rather shabbily. Uh, in fact, many of them haven't got any, um, I think the vast majority of them haven't got any pensions. Uh, they have no, had no raises also. So there, there, there's a lot of work to do. But I have to say that in the present minister, uh, our whole ethos is in and around making life better. Uh, for people in over this thing, she's totally committed to uh, supporting people. She's totally committed 
uh, to make changes in neighbourhood renewal. Uh, so, Joe, I think you, you, you're, you're knocking on an open door uh, with, the, with, with this minister because that's our whole background and uh, our purpose near enough for being. So, uh, yeah, anything we can do to help, uh, we fully support uh, what you're saying. And uh, we need to uh, ensure not only that you get answers, but the change that is required uh, that, 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 that is implemented. Thank you. Thanks, Ra. Thank you. Um, can I then bring in Mark, please? Thank you, Chair, and thanks to Joe, and welcome to his comrades uh, from Unison there. Chair, you'll know what members will know I'm not prone to uh, regurgitation, but I do think it's vitally important that we're all on record here as uh, articulating our support for these people who support some of our most vulnerable people. The fact that we're here like 15 years later and there's been no increase in funding, no increase in pay, no improvement in, in conditions it is absolutely shameful. I mean, because while there's no increase, Joe has outlined quite clearly there, there's, in real terms, been a massive decrease. Uh, now, I wonder, Joe, has there been work done to demonstrate the increase in workload and the demand and then during that, that period as well, now, I, I, I don't have those figures. I may have seen them before. I just know from my own experience on the ground, speaking to the, the, the providers and workers and carers, that their experience would suggest to me that, that demand is going through the roof, demand for the services and demands on them as individuals. Uh, you shouldn't have to demonstrate this, but it, but it, but it certainly will be helpful. Uh, to us in terms of articulating or amplifying our arguments, because this issue has been brought up for years, but the funding hasn't been brought up in years. Fair pay is essential. I mean, the fact is you couldn't pay people to do a lot of these vital jobs, and at times very dangerous uh, jobs, and, and you guys and the people you're representing just cannot be taken for granted. And uh, the, like the chair made the point there about people leaving, uh, and, and you couldn't you couldn't blame them. I know from again speaking to people on, on various projects, the frustration they have. I mean, they, they didn't get into this line of work to make a fortune. They got into it to make a difference. But it is wearying. It's so damaging to morale and to, to, to people's well-being when when they're, they're getting a pittance and in many instances getting less and they're much less financially. Uh, I wouldn't even say well off, but but re rewarded than the people that, that they're actually helping. Uh, but but but, that, but that, that'll do for for now, sorry, Joe. So just in terms of detail, increasing demand. Yeah, uh, maybe in terms of that question, uh, Mark, I, I'll probably bring in uh, Mel McCarl, who's our branch chair. He, he works for a, a supporting people provider, so I, I'd say he's probably best uh, placed to answer in terms of the increasing demands upon you know, workers within the supporting people program. Cheers. Do you want to come in there now? Yeah, can you hear me? Yeah, we can hear you. Go ahead now. Thanks, Chair. Uh, yeah, I mean, look, it's, it's well documented that the supporting people uh, program, Dr some of the most vulnerable and at-risk client groups within uh, uh, society. Um, 
as you all seen from the testimonies that were also presented uh, from a range of frontline workers uh, across the Sport and Field programme, it's detailed in those programmes or in those testimonies exactly the type of work that our members and workers across the Sport and Field programme complete on a daily basis. This is very challenging work, and what we have noticed, you know, six years ago, we done a presentation to what was called the DSD committee that time, and we raised concerns around working practices and workloads then. Uh, we waited for the necessary political intervention to be put in place to support these workers. We, we still wait for that, um, but six years ago, there was a lot of problems in the sector, but I can tell you that in terms of the work that people are being asked to do now and complete, that has changed dramatically, and we have asked and we have said on several occasions that there needs to be a re-evaluation of the work that um, our members do across the Support to People programme. Within the Northern Ireland Housing Executive's own paperwork, they recommend that workers should be on band three terms and conditions, uh, agenda for change terms and conditions, and that reflects band three within the health service is a pretty significant workload, significant duties. But what we are seeing now is that our members have in fact, when, uh, are, many of them are working under Band 4 and Band 5 duties and responsibilities and accountabilities, but their pay has increased. So that, that is reflected in the agenda for change terms and conditions, how they have been uh, increased for our members. But as you've seen, and it's well documented, that a lot of at-risk individuals are now finding themselves living in B&B accommodation because there is no public services there for these individuals and float support workers have had to engage with those individuals within B&B accommodation because there's an overflow, there's not enough supported living accommodations and certainly the probation board and the health service are relying on supporting people uh, schemes and supporting people providers to prop up public services. Um, for example, there was a, a 55 year old woman who works in a, a supported living scheme in Balamina, got in touch with Uniston about a month ago. And the client group within there, place of work has changed significantly. This individual sent on photographs. She was attacked by one of the service users and she was bitten um, by a service user. This same individual, because of her injuries, had to go off work and had to receive statutory sick pay. Her employer wouldn't even give her full pay after the realisation that she was assaulted and the reason why she was off was because of a work-related injury. So this is an example of the client group. We have individuals who have been stabbed, have been spat on. Um, we have some very you know, at-risk individuals who have got issues around alcohol and substance misuse. Um, we have category three sex offenders. Uh, we have people with learning disabilities. Well, a lot of at-risk individuals which we have to provide support for and that support is becoming more complex now and it's you know you talk about high staff turnover and people leaving the sector but I think it's a, it's a reality that there's not that many jobs here in Northern Ireland and the reality that we're facing is that our members are stressed their mental health has been, has been impacted by the lack of support and recognition that they are receiving uh, from their employers and from the statutory bodies who provide the funding so to say that we said that there was a crisis within support people in 2015, and that is just magnified now. Thank, thank you, Neil. And in terms of, of this year's uh, budget, 
I know now there's been a COVID bid accepted, albeit a, a reduced one, on last year, and I know we're going to ask further questions on that, as are yourselves. But was the intention behind that bid to address some of these historic pay issues, and, and had it been approved by the finance minister or the executive, how far would it have gone uh, in, in doing so? I mean, like I wandered into the committee, and, and we'll probably flesh it out, or other members might. What, what we can do to push this issue more, other than standing up every time there's a budget and saying how, how this needs done, should we be writing uh, to the minister and to the executive supporting the minister for bids in, in, in future monitoring now? Because, I mean, investment in this service, you know, this is a service supporting people. That's, that's, it actually saves a lot of money uh, to the public purse, but much more importantly than that, it saves lives as well. I think the problem, Mark, uh, the problem is, is within the current funding stream, and one of the biggest concerns or issues that we have as a, as a trade we represent over 2,000 members who work in the Supporting People programme, is that whenever we raise with the Housing Executive, Mark, or the Department, they say that it's not a matter for them to interfere or intervene when it comes to organisations setting terms and conditions of employment. That's for the each independent boards to do that. But in our experience, now we're not talking about all the employers, but in saying that, you could count the decent good employers in one hand, and I think there's over 80 um, providers who work within the Support and Peel programme. So you can count within your one hand the organisations that do recognise and value their staff, and those organisations also have a respect for trade unions and invite trade unions in, in the door. But our biggest concern is, Mark, that there's not a social clause built into the funding that stipulates that you know if you want to receive supporting people funding what we want to see is that standard sick pay across all the providers doesn't matter where you work what the organization is it's the same that if you're a cleaner or a porter in Alton galvin hospital in Derry, or you're a cleaner and a porter in the royal hospital in belfast you'll get the same terms and conditions it doesn't matter where you work but we find across employer to employer that it's not working that the, it's up to individual organisations to choose what they pay their staff. And what we're finding across a lot of these organisations, Mark, is that there's significantly high excessive people getting uh, significant salaries and also terms and conditions of employment, which the frontline staff don't get. And typically, what we're experiencing as a trade union in terms of how the funding works, if you work in the head office or you're a manager or you're a CEO, You'll get six months full sick pay, and you'll get a pretty good salary. But if you're a frontline worker, working, for example, in the House in the Wales in Derry, or you know, in uh, a project similar to that in Belfast, you'll get one week sick pay, uh, and that is not acceptable. Now, the, the issue is it's not about the funding. The housing executives say that they recommend that frontline staff should be should be in receipt of band three terms and conditions of employment. So if they're saying that, within the current funding stream, that can be met, but it's not being met. So the issue is, before what we'd like to see is that there's a social clause built into the funding before it's uh, sent to these organisations, and it's stipulated what the terms and conditions should be. That's the solution. No, I can maybe come in, Mark. I, I think in terms of, uh, you know, now that the executive is looking at procurement models and the funding is being looked at, 
There was a review carried out of the Supporting People programme in 2015. But the failure of that was there was a lack of engagement with trade unions on that. And there was a lack of taking into account the workforce costs of the programme when the review was carried out in 2015. And that's why we're in a position today whereby terms and conditions haven't improved for workers. So in terms of going forward, in terms of funding and funding models, what we're saying as Jumison is that any funding formula or model must take into account the workforce costs of providing the service. Those workforce costs should be based on agenda for change terms and conditions because these workers do the same or identical roles as people in the health service. And then in terms of that, that should be built into the funding contracts with the providers to provide those forms and conditions, and that there should be enforcement mechanisms and monitoring mechanisms for providers who fail to provide the agenda for change terms and conditions. Yeah, and then just in terms of the terms and conditions, I suppose, whether there's those inconsistencies across or, or, or between organisations in terms of, of, of what they offer or provide for staff, and, and that's unpalatable. The fact that there's inconsistencies within organisations yeah. is just completely unacceptable. But thank, thank you, guys. Yeah, could I maybe suggest maybe bringing in Saoirse Fanning at this stage? Saoirse is here as a, as a worker who works in a for a supporting people provider. Uh, maybe just hear her personal testimony uh, and we can take questions after that. Okay, go ahead, Saoirse. Thank you, Chair. I'd like to thank you for inviting us uh, to attend today. I'm the Joint Branch Secretary of the Unison Community Involvement Branch and a member of the Unison NEC and also a front line marker supporting adults with learning disabilities. I understand firsthand the issues and difficulties that our members face across the community and voluntary sector, particularly within the Supporting People programme. Within my own employment, we provide all aspects of support and care, including personal care, medication, cleaning, laundry, cooking, contact between clients and their families, medical appointments, managing finances, personal shopping, emotional support, and liaising with other professionals. Also, any other duties that our employer deem necessary. Our clients rely on us for all aspects of their daily lives. We provide community care and support to promote independence for vulnerable at-risk individuals. The jobs we complete have been outsourced and privatised to the detriment of the workers, yet supporting people programme workers remain dedicated and turn up every day to ensure that the clients they care and support are protected and supported to the highest standards. Within supporting people funded projects, there could be one person completing all the jobs listed above and more, sometimes on single cover or short staffed. This is in comparison to our counterparts in the health and social care trusts, where different roles and responsibilities are spread over numerous staff. This is how it should be done and reflects best practice. Within supporting people funded projects, more forensic clients were placed in the community settings. The staff are not being provided with the support and training to provide the appropriate and adequate support to these service users. Some of these service users are high risk, not only to the other service users within the projects, but also to staff in the wider community. Trying to mitigate the risk as much as possible is very difficult when you are not provided with adequate support and training. There is also a lack of information provided by the statutory bodies, such as the Health and Social Care Trust and Probation Services, who make referrals to supported living schemes. 
There are significant differences between how workers in the supporting people funded jobs and health and social care job trust jobs are remunerated for their work. Within health and social care trusts, staff are on agenda for change pay rates and receive incremental pay. Re receive pay enhancements for unsociable hours, night work and weekend work. Receive six months full pay and six months half pay. Receive enhanced maternity and their employer automatically recognises trade unions and has a working relationship with trade unions. Within supporting people-funded employers, very few workers receive above statutory sick pay. Most frontline staff receive minimum wage or just above minimum wage. Very few staff receive pay enhancement for unsociable hours, night work and weekend work. Some employers do not even pay contractual hourly rates when completing a sleepover shift. Very few employers provide enhanced maternity pay, and also very few employers recognise trade unions. The fact of the matter is that supporting people-funded employers are receiving millions of pounds of public money every year, and no one from the Northern Ireland Housing Executive or the Department for Communities appears to be concerned that the frontline workers are not being respected or treated with the same rights and respect as their counterparts in the NHS. There need to be populations in the funding. Workers' rights and protections should be paramount to delivering the programme. Pay, terms, conditions above the NHS agenda for change is standard in any future model of procurement and contract to providers. Without improved protections for workers, the Department of Community is failing workers across the Sport and People programme, and this is leading to good, highly qualified staff leaving the job they love, which in turn leads to lack of continuity of care for the service users we support. Frontline people-funded workers cannot be seen as a working pillar anymore or taken for granted. Society and the lives of those we support would be significantly worse off without us providing these vital services. I would like to read some short paragraphs from personal statements we have received from our members who work within supporting people-funded employers. At the moment, we have a lady with a serious mental health problem. She has been having suicidal thoughts a lot. Police have attended due to the level of concern and support required. We are alone working at night, and we are not trained to deal with this situation. I work with clients with very complex needs. Residents have regular incidents. In the most recent one, a client threw a microwave, a kettle, and smashed a glass bulb. The bathroom door was also pulled off the hinges. Staff were assaulted. They were punched and their hair pulled. We do not receive sick pay if we are injured and have to take time off to recover. When I presented for shift, while checking on residents the first thing in the morning, I found a lady deceased in her bed. I followed the same procedures, performed duties and completed all tasks required in this event. I performed these with dignity and respect. When all cried out, I then crumbled and broke down. Because of a supported loving setting, you become very attached to the residents. It's like losing a loved one. When I went to seek support, none was given, and I was told that I had other residents to care for, and I had to complete an 11-hour shift, feeling numb. This is only a small shift, snapshot of daily working for our members. Our members were at breaking point before COVID-19, and they have well passed this, that point now. The Department for Communities and the Northern Ireland Housing Sector can no longer say that it is up to the boards of supporting people-funded organisations to set the terms and conditions for their employees. The money they receive is public money, and they should be scrutinised and monitored more. Supporting people-funded employers need to be held more accountable on how they distribute public money and how they value essential frontline workers. Frontline workers should not have to use food banks because they cannot afford to eat. 
They should not have to seek help and support from charities because their support and people-funded employer does not pay them adequately or provide adequate terms and conditions. Should, they should not be going into rent arrears because they were injured in, at their work and they do not receive adequate sick pay. They should not be working two jobs to make ends meet and they should not be treated like second-class citizens anymore. Thank you, Chair. Thank you, Saoirse. That really did hit it home. And I know we have the confidential paper that we received as well. I, I absolutely get it. I remember being part of the Agenda for Change and, and the people moving over because I worked for the health service then. And, you know, just one thing like money handling could have put someone up an extra band. Um, and, you know, and you've just went into great detail there of the amount of, of personal uh, work that these people that people do. Uh, I don't know if you could. Uh, uh, just want to ask a quick question, and I know that we are under ma major time pressures here today, and have two members still to come in. Um, uh, under supporting people, um, you, you may well have within some of those organisations um, the likes of a social worker being paid, or an occupational therapist. Um, do they come, fall under those same terms and conditions, or, or because they are higher bands, do they are they treated slightly better, or? Just, just, just by the by, I'm asking that. Uh, look, within organisations, different organisations structure their, 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 their workforce differently. So you may have in some organisations a support worker, uh, a senior support worker, uh, or someone who's called a senior practitioner. Uh, um, there will be a differential in terms of the, the level of pay they will receive, but it still falls far below what someone would get working in the health service in the same role. No, look, thank you for that. Uh, I think we, we, there is a lot of digging that this committee will want to do after this briefing, but I'm going to move swiftly on because, well, as I say, we're under major time constraints today. I've got Karen and then I've got Kelly, so if we can bring Karen in, please. Thank you, Chair. Um, firstly, I want to declare an interest as being a member of SIP2, um, uh, a long-term member. Firstly, I want to thank Joe, Niall and, and Saoirse for coming today. Um, uh, I've been working with Niall in the past um, for too many years on this topic and I suppose you're sitting here again listening to how it has exacerbated over the many years it's there and it's totally unacceptable. I think, uh, Niall, I was part of that presentation six years ago. You just reminded me um, in terms of it. But particularly, I want to thank Saoirse for giving her own personal story there because um, it just highlights that it's not a job, it's a vocation. Because if it was a job, Saoirse, you would have left a long time ago um, and you could earn probably more money in a less stressful environment. Um, and you've represented many, many workers uh, here today and, and the experiences they're going through. So I want to thank you for that, Saoirse. I want to commend all the staff and supporting people for the hard work that they do and they work with the most vulnerable in our society. And Niall outlined it there. Um, we are seeing um, all uh, those uh, increases in, in terms of pressures around emergency accommodation um, and particularly over this last year in COVID and, and how people have been very, very vulnerable and how staff have had to go in and support them. So we're seeing that as well. Um, uh, I suppose it's, it's just totally not acceptable to hear there, particularly over the COVID period that staff um, did not receive uh, sick pay were put on statutory sick pay when the department gave organisations that funding that would have been expected. So that is that is something I suppose we'll be following up after this as well. 
um, uh, and to hear that there's good organisations out there that can do this. So we know that it can be done. But I suppose I just wanted to come on and know that um, Minister Nicola in December had uh, asked the housing executive to carry out a revised three-year uh, supporting people strategy um, to be developed in partnership and co-design with the sector. And that model is to include a fair salary um, for employees as well. We know. I know that I met with the housing executive this week. I know that that's to come out um, hopefully in the next couple of weeks. And that work has been endorsed by Minister Hargey as well, who I know is very, very committed um, to making improvements across the sector. I know Fred touched there on neighbourhood renewal, who are in a similar position. But Joe, I just wanted the RC in terms of that review that, that's happening in terms of the strategy. Is Unison involved on it? Uh, no, uh, we have that. We have asked to be involved in it, but we've had no engagement uh, from the housing executive uh, as yet. We have met with the housing executive on numerous occasions. We've asked him to engage with us, uh, but we have had no engagement from the executive, which housing executive, which has been disappointing. Right. Thank you for that, Joe, and, and, and that is something else we will follow up on as well. Just want to thank you again for coming in. I know we're under pressure for for time, uh, but thank you once again for coming in. Thank you, Chair. Thank you, Karen. Um, can we go then to Kelly, please? Thank you very much, Chair, and thank you very much, Joe, Niall, and Saoirse. Saoirse, um, as Karen has just said, thank you very much for your testimony. Um, well, alongside the other um, pieces of evidence that we've been provided, it certainly hits home very starkly exactly the type of work that you're delivering, and thank you for that. Um, I'll just declare an interest as former union representative for Beck two many years ago when I worked for um, a communications company. Um, guys, uh, there's, there is a question I would like to ask you if, with regards to Unison, um, and thank you for the work that you're doing to try to protect um, workers. Um, obviously, when we talk about the type of work that supporting people provides is an extension of government's care in the community commitments. And we have all known that care in the community is, instead of providing what it was supposed to do, which is care in the community, all it has done is underinvested in those people um, who needed our support. So I'm actually wondering if there's a different tact has been used. I'm just thinking about ways that we can, we can help to support. Duty of care. Now, under a duty of care, not only to employees, who are delivering services, but also those people who are in receipt of those services. Mm -hmm. And I'm just wondering, under a duty of care, um, has that ever been taken into consideration? Does the contract or the grant that you guys are provided, does it dictate or determine the level of training or specific skill set that people like Sorsha and other co-workers of hers have to have in order to support those people in the community? Uh, the short answer to that is, is no. There is a lack of requirement in terms of the skill set of the workforce, the qualifications of the workforce. Uh, what I can't say in terms of the current workforce, um, they are highly de dedicated. Yeah, they are very much, you know, work on the job, gain their experience on the job, and they're very good at it. But there's very little recognition in terms of the skills and the abilities that they apply in their roles. Yeah, thank you. Um, this is something that is coming down quite clearly. Uh, it applies to carers, family carers and friend carers. It comes to yourselves that there is this um, 
absolute lack of awareness of the level of skills that you guys have and because there's that lack of awareness then there's nobody actually looking at if you were to equate this to somebody within the public sector what would the pay be like um and to be honest it's not just letting down workers in supporting people it's actually letting down the people that you're there to help now i know work having worked in the community voluntary sector for for, for nearly two decades um Staff and supporting people who are employed and supporting people will always go that one step further, that 10 steps further in order to help people. Um, and to be honest, I think this is where government's depending. So where the government has turned around and has said that um, the budget has been protected, <clears throat> again, it's semantics. The budget has been frozen and it's been frozen for years with the result that services may well be restricted or reduced but the main problem of that has been that the pressure being put on staff and the level of support that's being provided to the people out there. So I'm just wanting to ask, is Unison providing any evidence to the disability strategy that's going through the Department for Communities? Because I know that the carers side of things um, have pushed very strongly for carers to be included in that element. What about um, workers who are delivering services within the community? Are you guys um, providing evidence through to that disability strategy to ensure that from the person with disabilities point of view or a vulnerable person's point of view that the people who are working with them have the skills and the ability and the support to be able to deliver that service? <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, yeah. Thank you. I think you raise in relation to the, the persons with, with disabilities and the disability strategy. Obviously, disability organisations will, will put forward on behalf of people with disabilities, but I think that's something that certainly we could pick up on and, and you know maybe look to make a contribution to. I think maybe that's on behalf of this committee chair. If I could propose, if everyone's happy with it, that we actually ask the the part of the department that's looking after the disability strategy what. Um, consideration are they taking to the skill set, the training and the support that is provided for any workers who are employed through a grant or contract to deliver services for people with disabilities? Because if we can get that into a strategy, it recognises then Saoirse and her colleagues and all that they go through. When you think about the wealth and the diversity of the work that is being provided, um, if that was within the health service, it would kill the health service um, because they would have a significantly higher cost um, than what is currently being paid out in supporting people. Guys, keep doing what you're doing. It is brilliant and it's very, very well appreciated. Unfortunately, not monetarily wise, but um, we'll see if we can get those improved. Um, I know that having worked in the community and voluntary sector, I heard civil servants say that they didn't want to pay people in the community and voluntary sector more than they were on, which was very unfortunate given the work that we were doing. Uh, but that shouldn't be the case. A person should be paid a fair level of money for the work that they are delivering and the skills that they have. And that's clearly not the case. So thank you. Can I come in there, Kelly, just on a few points here? Yeah, go ahead, Ma. Yeah. Yeah, so, yeah, Kelly, just on a, on a number of points you were saying, you talk about you know, two-day care and, and, and stuff like that and, and qualifications. I think it's important for the committee to know that all supporting people programme-funded workers are registered with the Northern Ireland Social Care Council, so they're accountable in terms of their uh, performance and their ethics and, and, and how they carry out their jobs, which is similar to those in the public service. We, those of us who work in the Support Real programme also uh, have the same qualifications as people who carry out similar roles in the across health and social care settings. So we are 
equally as qualified and as regulated and, and as accountable as people who work in uh, across health and social care settings. So there's an issue there around that. And you know, there never has been an equality impact assessment completed around the funding and how that impacts on frontline workers. And you know, the, the majority of this presentation has been about workers' terms and conditions and the pressures put on workers. But as you have rightly said, Chair, and, and Karen said it as well, this is a devotion for workers. Those of us who, who work in this field, we, we don't do it for the money. We do it because we genuinely care for at-risk uh, individuals in our communities. We want to make our communities a better place for everybody to live in. But there's also a problem around service delivery and how the service um, quality has been impacted by the... You, know, you talk about the funding being uh, froze or protected. It's being cut, Kelly. And this is impacting on service provision. It's impacting on the quality of life of the at-risk individuals that those workers support. So, there's, in, in terms of, of uh, qualifications and, and you know, the standard of employee, in many cases, workers are equally as qualified, but they're just not remunerated equally. But I can tell you also that within the community and voluntary sector, there are people at the top of some of these organisations who are getting better terms and conditions than their counterparts in health and social care. Unfortunately, Niall, I recognise that statement, having worked in the charity sector for a long time. Um, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. Um, and this is where we need to recognise and to ensure that people who are very skilled and, and to be honest, the experience as well has to be counted into that because it's not just all about, you know, passing an exam and something. Um, I, I know rightly that people who are working in supportive people programmes um, have experience there that it's very hard to sort of pinpoint exactly what that is. It's just that care and compassion. And this is, I, I believe this has been abused. Um, and I think that it should, you should be remunerated and the terms and conditions should be appropriate. Um, teachers who work in special education needs schools who are attacked have a certain level of protection there. If it was public sector workers doing what you would do, they would have a certain level of protection there. That duty of care, I don't think, is there. So thank you very much. Um, Hopefully we'll be able to do something to help you with that, but I would encourage you to feed into that disability strategy work because we're trying to do it for carers, family carers, and I would very much like the employees who are out there delivering support and people to be considered in that as well because this is a circle. This, if we have great employees who are delivering fantastic services, then we have vulnerable people who are being cared for appropriately and can have the best life. If we don't, if there's something missing in that, then then we can't do what we're trying to do. So thank you very much. Okay, thanks, Kelly. Frada, do you want to quickly come back on something? I just wanted to make a point to Claren. Just I should have done it at the start as a member of SEPTU. Uh, just what just wanted to declare that. Thank you, thank you, Fra. Look, thank you. Um, everybody who has asked to speak has has come in. Um, I just want to thank you as well. I know that we had met some time ago um, discussing these issues and then I asked you to write to the committee. We're only getting around to hearing you now, sadly, um, because of, of other issues, as you well know. Um, you've left us with lots of points there that I think certainly the committee will be more than happy to follow up on, whether that's the feasibility study, whether it is the, the, the funding that, is that, that has been um, claimed under COVID. Um, and those various costs. Um, I think our clerks will have taken plenty of notes here and we'll be listening back. 
um, to the issues raised because um, I can't even remember. There's been that many issues raised, um, but I, I know and I speak on behalf of the committee that we will be more than happy to champion this um, to say that those workers um, do have the right terms and conditions that, that they duly deserve, absolutely deserve, um, because uh, the rules that they're doing are specialised rules. They're not everyday rules, they're very specialised rules, and, and we certainly need them. Look, so can I thank you for joining us today? Um, sorry it took so long to get it on the agenda, but it was really a really worthwhile evidence session. So thank you, all of you. Yeah, thank you, Chair. Thank you, Committee. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you. You're welcome. All right, members, we're just going to stop for a few moments just to prepare for our next briefing. Okay. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 29. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 29. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 29. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 29. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 29. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 29. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 29. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 29. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 29. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 29. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 29. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 29. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 29. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 29. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 29. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 29. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 29. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 29. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 29. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 29. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 29. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 29. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 29. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 29.
This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 29. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 29. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 29. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 29. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 29. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 29. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 29. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 29. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 29. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 29. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 29. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 29. Okay, we're moving on then to agenda item 6, which is a departmental briefing on supporting people. Members, you'll find this agenda item at page 44 of your meeting pack. And then can I welcome to the meeting Eloise Brown, Martin McDermott and Alistair Mawinney. So we'll bring you in. There we go. These are all in. These are all very welcome to the committee. Um, Eloise, I think it's yourself that's going to brief us. Hello, yes, thank you, Chair. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll give some brief opening remarks because I'm, I'm, I'm the, the committee heard a lot already, and I'm sure they'll have a lot of questions. But I'll run through just very briefly some things that will we'll hopefully cover some of the issues that have been raised. Um, you're aware, obviously, of the context of supporting people. We have eight, 86 service providers within the programme. We do a very diverse range of work, um, a mixture of accommodation-based services and floating support. Just over slide. That is slightly better, yes. Yes, it is indeed. Go okay. ahead. We'll try that okay. and see. I'll, I'll speak up. Um, you're aware, obviously, of the budget. Annual budget for SP over the last six years has been 70, 72.8 million. Happy to discuss more about the budget, obviously. I know the members will have questions. We've continued to support the Provider Innovation Fund, which is in its third year. That's managed by the Housing Executive, and that, that's one of the ways in which we support improvements to service delivery in SP. We've given you a couple of examples of the, of the funded project in your briefing paper. Since officials last week, the committee in June last year, we've, we've obviously mainly been focused on the continuing response to COVID. Um, last year, 10 million was provided in COVID funding over and above the SP budget. That was reduced in year to 8.4 million as we gathered more information on, on costs associated with the pandemic for providers. And this funding was to address there's funding specifically for PPE demand and cost. Uh, there was funding for additional staffing costs due to higher levels of absence. Reductions in occupancy levels to enable social distancing where providers lost housing benefit income, for example. 
loss of income to providers from their income stream, such as shops, cafes, one of social enterprises that had to close, um, funding for enhanced cleaning and infection prevention costs. And then from the autumn time, we, we added to that recruitment of temporary staff to cover shortages and this element of additional sickness pay, where sickness and isolation work were taking place due to COVID. Um, so they came in from the autumn. I, I wasn't sure from, from what you, Unison was saying whether the cases they had identified had been free that point of them coming in, um, because that, that agreement to use the funding for that purpose wasn't retrospective. It happened around the same time as the Department of Health decided to do the same thing for, for staff that they fund. And that was really to address the spikes in, in infections that were being seen in some schemes so that there was additional capacity uh, for additional members of staff, but also to ensure that, that when staff had to self-isolate, uh, they weren't financially penalised. And it, it, you know, there was mention that employers may have claimed it and not passed it on to staff. We would be really keen to request details of that if, if Unison or the committee are happy to give it to us. Um, we will look into that. We get, we get details that we can follow up. We'd be very, very keen to do that. So those were the areas that the, the additional funding covered. In addition, there was three million in SP reserves that has been held by some providers, about 30 providers, and that was approved to be un, unfrozen and used by providers on SP eligible spend. That has been approved for use in this year as well. So that was the funding last year. In the current financial year, again, some COVID funding has been made available, six million this year, and that's to cover the same categories of costs. In terms of the impact on service users, it was very clear at an early stage that the age and profile of service users meant they were at risk mm -hmm. from COVID. And the housing executive worked very closely with providers to gather information. We ensure that both the department and the housing executive were aware of the levels of infections within schemes and were able to respond to provide support. And one, one example of that would be the change in the autumn when we saw spikes to put additional measures in so that there was further staff support. In terms of levels of infections, as of the 4th of June, the reports that the housing executive gathers from providers indicate there have been 1,051 positive COVID tests among service users and staff. 617 service users and 433 staff. Of the service users, 390 of those positive tests have been in the older people group, 125 in the disability group, 83 among the homelessness group and 19 in the young people group. Um, and given, given the age profile, obviously, and, and the health profile of, of service users, there are a number of sadly deceased and it's been reported to the housing executive by, for example, by relatives that they tested positive for COVID before they died. Uh, one of those was a member of staff, 70 service users in the older people group, seven in the disability group, and, and one in the homeless group. Um, so, it, it, you know, it, it's been evident from the start of the pandemic that, that we've had to really carefully manage and keep an eye on the infection levels. And the housing executive has monitored that very closely. We worked closely with them in the autumn when the figures spiked to look at new options to support providers, and that's what led to the change in um, recruitment of staff, approval for further recruitment of staff and additional sickness pay. And we recognise, obviously, the, the evidence you've heard already from, from units and members, the commitment and diligence of the organisations and staff, and staff have faced extremely challenging circumstances this year, as well as the service users and their families. And we're very aware of that. 
in terms of the cross-departmental cross working that we've taken forward to, to help support the response to COVID. Uh, we've worked very closely with the Department of Health over the last year, particularly on issues of access to PPE, testing and vaccination. And officials in health obviously have been under very significant pressure, but they've given very generously of their time to ensure that the messaging and the guidance has been joined up and that relevant initiatives have been available to SP service users and staff. For example, through regular engagement with health, we were able to ensure priority COVID testing and vaccinations for the SP sector in line with those funded by DOH. And we reached agreement that the housing executive would procure and provide PPE to all supporting people schemes, which the Department of Health then reimbursed for their, their share of jointly funded schemes. And that engagement has really helped in building the cross-departmental working relationships. And as a housing executive have built on that in developing their draft three-year strategy for SP, which is in preparation, and that will set the direction for the programme in the medium term. That's going to look at issues such as the implementation of the remaining recommendations from the 2015 SP review, as well as anticipating emerging issues, particularly increasing demand for services, lessons learned from, from the effects of the pandemic, and how to help recovery for providers and for service users. And it's been a challenging piece of work for the housing executive and for providers to feed into in current circumstances, and that, that's still in development. Um, with the support of the housing executive, the department is going to look this year at developing new models for the delivery of supported housing services, and we'll work closely with colleagues in departments of health and justice as we do that. Um, in terms of pay, we, we, we fully recognise the commitment of staff in the SP sector, and I can't, I can't say that strongly enough. We do expect an environment that allows for fair and reasonable terms and conditions for employees and employers, and that's agreeable to staff representative organisations. It is the fact that neither the department nor the housing executive is the direct employer for supporting people's staff. So, so from a, a contractual perspective, it has no role in setting salaries or employment terms and conditions provided by SP providers. The employers are solely responsible for that. But we're, we're, Listen to the, what's been said today by Eunice, and we're happy to keep looking at that, keep looking at how that can be amended in contracts going forward. And obviously the Minister, alongside her efforts in the voluntary sector, the Minister is very keen to look at ways in which the grant through, SP, through which SP is funded can better support employers to provide improved rates of pay to its workforce. In terms of work on funding flexibilities, that has been ongoing as well, how procurement might, might be used, and the housing executive have been taking that forward again, under, under quite a bit of pressure in terms of the immediate COVID response, but it is making headway. So that's a very, very quick summary of, of what the department wanted to say. Um, we're happy to take questions and, and obviously come back to the issues that you and raised members wish to do that. Okay, Alaric, thank you. Um, I know for some members they find it, I don't know whether it's, whether it's your microphone or what, whether it's our system, it was just it's very difficult to hear at times, but I think I picked up most of it today. Um, you know, from you've heard it from this committee so many times about the the, the underfunding within supporting people. Um, so I'm not I'm not going to go over it again. Though just to ask about um, you had said in your your paper that important lessons have been learned from the pandem pandemic um, uh, and how this was reducing the strain on the health service. So do you think there needs to be more recognition from the Department of Health when it comes to supporting people? I remember those conversations taken back in the old, uh, place in the old DSD committee maybe 
seven, eight, nine years ago around supporting people and why was supporting people being funded from this department and not funded through other departments or through the health department predominantly. Um, so because quite a lot of it is, is, is health aligned, not all of it, but quite a lot of it is health aligned. So it's just um, around that, do, do we need to see the Department of Health step up um, some more when it comes to this funding? And then just really all of those issues that Unison raises about the feasibility study. Can you tell me where that feasibility study as well is sitting at the minute? It is a draft, but it has been definitely a very available soon. I don't know if Alistair wants to say a little bit more about that. Okay. Alistair, you're on silent. Hi. Very. Yes, you now. Thank you. Um, yes, the, um, the feasibility report um, is underway. It was a two-stage report looking um, at a, a scoping um, sector in, in the first instance, and that has been completed, and we've moved to the final um, section of the, of the feasibility report, which is now in final draft and should be considered by the executive team in the next month. Okay, so we should have that then, um, certainly for coming back in September? Yes. Okay, okay. Um, the other issue then, uh, just... Around the where they made where the Unison had made the claim about the funding that was made available through COVID for people, for for those organisations who had staff going off on long term or going off on sick or having to isolate, I mean that that is really quite shocking. If people if 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 um, the, that money was being claimed by the employers and not being passed down to staff, have you heard anything around that? Do you know any more information on that? We haven't heard any details of that, Chair. No, certainly we will look into it. If we if we have enough detail that we can follow it up, we will certainly follow it up. I can guarantee that. We'd be very we'd be very keen to have more details on that. Okay, and just that issue then around the Department of Health and um and the supporting people, how do you see that going forward? Um, you know, will there, you know, has there been conversations with health again around this? I know this was, as I said, back seven, eight years ago, these conversations were going on in arguments about who should be funding supporting people. Okay, we, we, we haven't had discussions about crossover funding. Yeah. Um, but we do need, we do need to have either on a weekly or a fortnightly basis we need regular and have met over the last year fortnightly to keep an eye on those things that are very similar. Certainly part of the, the persuasiveness of the argument for the ten million that we got, which was urgently needed for providers and staff, was based very much on that argument that if if there isn't proper control and proper support within FP, that the impact of that will be felt in health. And that argument was accepted, and we'll, we'll keep making that argument because it is clear that there's a very close link. Um, you know, we've worked very closely with health in terms of getting guidance out, in terms of access to testing, ensuring that SP staff get access to vaccinations. All, all of those things, we're, we're keen to keep in step with, you know, the point that Eunice made earlier, um, that in some ways the work is very similar. Yeah. Where the work is similar, people should be treated the same way, and that's, that's what we should try to do um, with those interventions over the last year to accept that actually, in many cases, where people are working alongside each other, doing similar jobs, if the work's similar, then there should be similar access to support and testing and, and those, other, those other actions that we put in place. I, mean, they're, they're, I absolutely agree 100% with what Unison said when it come, came around to the workers' pay and terms and conditions. And they had mentioned then that this was, uh, you know, part of the tendering process. 
Um, so there is a responsibility there that the department do have um, when it comes to that tendering process uh, to look to see um, are, are, are these workers being treated differently to other workers within any of our statutory sectors. So I suppose I, I leave that with you as the department. Um, they ask um, that certainly that that, that that becomes one of the uh, uh, criteria when you're looking at, at tendering just around terms and conditions for staff. Um, but I'm going to bring in members. Kelly has her hand up. Can I ask other members if they could put their hand up now? Because it gives me an idea of time scales just. So, Kelly. Thank you very much, all. Um, I appreciate it for your update. Um, I just wanted to... Uh, I know we're tight for time, so I'll not be take too long. Um, can I just double check on this issue of communities and health? Um, can I just check in the programme for government, supporting people comes under which outcome? I wouldn't have that off the top of my head, I'm afraid. It's obviously a priority for the department. It's in the departmental business plan. Yeah, the, the, the reason why I'm asking is because um, there's obviously permanent secretaries um, and senior civil servants who are in charge of the various outcomes of the programme for government. What I'm a bit flabbergasted about is that there hasn't been any joint um, funding bid um, under the programme for government outcome for supporting people. Um, so I'm just wondering why there wasn't a joint bid put forward with health and communities, given that it's delivering, supporting, or, you know, care in the community. And also ESF, ESF funding, um, supporting people does depend on that. Um, we know that that's coming to an end. What's the plans? That's me. I mean, in terms of in terms of joint bidding for mainstreamed SB funding, um, we can certainly look at that. One of the things that was very helpful in getting that additional ten million was that because we were working closely with health, they agreed to support the bid, and we you know we really really learned from that 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 was a useful way to approach it. So, so we'll certainly look at that. Um, I'm, I might I might hand over to Alistair if that's all right for your second question on ESF. Yes. Alison, would you be able to turn there? Um, I'm ESF. The, if it's social fund, um, it's not. It's not part of our, our main funding that, that comes in as from the from the department. Seventy. We get funded seventy two point eight million from DFC. So um, ESF isn't part of our um, the funding that I look after. All right. Okay. Because I, I was under the impression that uh, some of the providers for supporting people um, were concerned that ESF funding, when that European social fund disappears, that that would have an implication for them. Um, so it's um, not through yourselves? It's not through ourselves. Okay. okay. It may Thank be you. the services they deliver that aren't supporting people services, Kelly. It may just be that they have other work that they do that they, they receive ESF money for. And I think that there is a lot of complexity and diversity in, in the sector, I think, the work that quite often we, we may not be aware of because we're just pushing out the supporting people out and off. Okay. Thank you. Okay. Thanks, Kelly. Can I bring in Karen, please? Thank you, Chair. Mine's is just going to be very brief um, because Eloise has come in and answered and um, clarified there, but also confirmed that um, they are willing to go back and speak to Unison and pick up on any of those outstanding uh, cases and come back uh, to follow that through as well. So um, uh, that's really been covered, and I just wanted to say that. Thank you, Eloise, for your presentation. 
Okay, thank you. There's no other member has identified here on the screen that they want to come in and ask anything further. I, I suppose it's just um, then just further on from that, just to say that the committee, you did listen in, you were listening into the Unison brief, so you know that the committee um, will be taking forward quite a lot of, of what we heard uh, and questions. Um, I would imagine that pretty much then, if we do get that feasibility study, we'll get that in the summertime um, for coming back in September. And, and also answers to many of the questions that we will have. So I would say we'll be, a, you know, after recess, um, we'll be looking for another supporting people update then, um, because it, it's an issue that has been going on for some time. And, and Unison did write to us some time ago, but because of COVID, we couldn't get them in any sooner. Um, but I think it is, a, it's a, a, these issues that they have raised are not issues that are going to go away. And they're issues that need dealt with pretty quickly. Um, because we are going to see a, a constant drain and loss of, of staff within that sector and the impact that will have most certainly on health um, uh, will be yeah will be catastrophic so look thank you for joining us today and um, we will pick up with you again after after recess on some of the issues that have been highlighted today we'll hopefully have those answers and be able to move forward um, with some positivity all being well um, come September time so thank you for your time today Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, members, we're going to then move on to agenda item seven, which is a departmental briefing on neighbourhood renewal. You'll find this at page 53 of your pack. So can I welcome then to the meeting David Sales, Colette Toman, Jean McAnulty, Gerard Murray and John Burns. Um, you are all very welcome. Where are you there? Hold on. We've got David there. David, yes, you're, I think you're Good on morning. your own. I have deserted you. I think after we deserted you last week, <laughs> you're now deserting us. There you are. Um, we can, uh, I suppose, I don't know whether we move slightly quicker then through that than what we'd anticipated. Uh, we can actually wait a moment on to see if we can get them in and we can move on then to our, our, our correspondence, couldn't we? David, we'll put you back in the audience while we try and find okay. out where your colleagues are. Um, no problem. So don't go anywhere. Don't leave us. <laughs> and we'll, we'll, we'll just move on then to agenda item 10. Um, if members can follow me now to agenda item 10, which is correspondence. Um, members, the correspondence memo is at page 123 of your pack. I want to draw your attention to page 125, uh, which is a letter from the Belfast Metropolitan Residence Group in relation to the lot scheme. Uh, members, we brought this uh, forward last week, and I think it was Kelly who had asked us if we could uh, bring it forward this week or bring it back again this week. Um, can I just ask Oliver, can you bring all the members in just so we go through the correspondence memo? Um, there, we're all coming back in again. Teaser. There you go. Um, so what they were what they were asking was for us to endorse the the report and recommend to the minister that the department integrates a lot scheme into its town and city centre regeneration package. Members, I, I need to get um, some sort of steer from members on this as to what we want to take this forward. If anybody wants to say anything, Kelly? Yeah, Chair. Um, to be honest. I agree with this. We know that the Minister has said on a, on a couple of occasions that the living over the shop scheme isn't something that she's bringing forward. But um, <clears throat> the only thing I would add to what we're being asked is 
it's not just towns and city centres. We need to consider um, rural towns as well, which is going to tie into our neighbourhood renewal that's coming up, um, because there are definitely areas within rural smaller towns um, that have space above shops that if we want to encourage people into more centralised living together, um, as we think about the reducing uh, reducing the dependence on cars and on travel um it's something we should certainly consider but i'm i'm up for sending this forward to ask the minister but i'm just concerned that up until now the lots scheme hasn't been being taken forward by the department okay thank you kelly Friday, do you want to come in there sure uh, just to hang in uh, I remember the whole discussion uh, and debate on around the LAT scheme uh, got back a number of years, and I, uh, and, and I think at that stage we, we, we had uh, supported the thing and wished it, wished it well. I think that uh, when speaking in the Assembly there a few weeks ago on this, a few months ago on this, uh, I'd raised the issue that, uh, that there, there is a huge uh, review going on, the, uh, on by the department, or there has been, uh, and including the future of the likes of the housing executive and others uh, that uh, would uh, develop the development strategy for the future. And I said then, and I still believe it, uh, while I have nothing really against it, uh, that everything has to be part of that strategy. Uh, so that every element of housing has been taken into consideration once it's been moved forward. Thank yeah. you. Yeah, thank you, Frapp. I, I think I, I would be happy to send this on to the department um, uh, uh, in looking at how we take forward our housing and our, our housing um, structures here in Northern Ireland. I do see merit in the lot scheme, absolutely, and I remember it too. Fra going back a number of years ago, the debate that was around it, um, and, and the lot scheme can take many different guises. It can be social housing, it can be various types of housing. Um, so I yeah. think that I, I think there is merit on it, um, but I um, I mean I would be perfectly happy if we sent it through to ask that it be included certainly whenever the department are are, are are looking at the way forward for housing in Northern Ireland. Would members be happy that we do that? Agreed. Yeah. 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 All right. Yeah. Sure. Okay. Look, thank you for that. Um, members, then, can I then take you to page 175? Um, there's a request by a number of groups to brief the committee on the current situation faced by arts, culture and creative industries across Northern Ireland. Our members then consent, are content that we receive a briefing on this issue when we come back after summer recess? Agreed. Yeah. Agreed. Okay, thank you. Sure. Yes, go ahead. Who's that? It's Pam. Here. Pam, go ahead. Thank you. Uh, I just wanted to say this point that it might be um, a good opportunity for me to declare an interest given the remit of this um, committee uh, that I'm a, a secretary on the old production which is a performing arts production company it is on the members uh, register of interest but I wanted to make that clear um, in this committee but yes absolutely to support um, that call for a briefing from um, from the, the arts culture sector because we know how difficult um, life has been in, in the last 18 months and continues to be very difficult. So I think it's really important that we do hear that briefing. Thank you, Pam. Thank you for that. Um, members then all agreed that, that we schedule that briefing for um, when we come back in September, yes? Okay. Yes. All right, members, can I then ask you to turn to page 175 where there's a department le departmental letter regarding policy directions for the National Lottery Heritage Fund. Um, 
can I then ask if you have any comments or whether you wish to be involved in this engagement process? Yes, please. Yes, please. <laughs> thought that might be the answer. <laughs> that's a yes, that's yeah. okay. Members, I have nothing else to bring up under correspondence. Has anybody else anything within the correspondence memo? Are we content um, to agree um, the, the actions that we've, we've said today and the other actions as drafted? Yes? Agreed? Agreed? Yeah. All right, thank you for that. Okay, members, I'm going to take you back because I think we have everybody now in the waiting room again. So let me just get my pages in the right order again. Yay. Okay, so we're going back to agenda item seven. Mm -hmm. So if we can bring in then David, Colette, Jane, Jared, and John. There we are. And take all of the members out. Not quite literally, just take them out of the audience. <laughs> take them out of the spotlight. <laughs> there we go. Let me see who we have. We have David, with Jared, with Jane, with Colette, with John. There you go. You are all very welcome. And we, we thought there for a minute that you had all taken the hump and left us after last week, but <laughs> glad that you didn't. Um, David, is it yourself that's going to give us a briefing? Yes, Chair. I'll just run through maybe some okay. very quick introduction uh, just to frame the conversation. So I'm sure members are all aware, but Neighbourhood Renewal was launched in 2003. Um, as a program to target the 10 most deprived urban areas as measured by the multiple deprivation measures. Um, there are 36 neighbourhood renewal areas and our reach is about 16% of, of the population. We have a budget of about 18 million per year, which we use to support about 300 projects across those areas. And we have a capital budget of about 3 million a year, which we use primarily around community centres, improvement uh, sports facilities, play parks, etc. Um, the programme works through neighbourhood renewal partnerships in each area. Um, membership of the partnerships is a mix of community, political, uh, private sector, staff bodies, etc. Um, and they are responsible, obviously, for the local planning at that grassroots level. We work through a, an application process which includes economic appraisal, contract, payment, and then a monitoring and evaluation process to start to measure some of our outputs and outcomes. Uh, it's a long-running programme, as I said, it's about 18 years uh, in, in, on the go. Uh, it was evaluated independently back in 2014, and that evaluation showed that the strategy was broadly working but that there were uh, ways in which obviously it could be optimised or improved. There was 21 recommendations that came forward. But that evaluation was stymied really by the review of local government, which was ongoing at that time, and then the suspension of the Assembly meant in the absence of a minister, the review couldn't be progressed. But since Minister Hargey took up post, we have started back into the review. But again, with the COVID situation, the review now needs to be reframed, obviously in the post-COVID environment. Um, and also in light of the executive's development of the anti-poverty strategy, which um, will have a place-based uh, deprivation approach within it. So happy, hopefully, um, happy to get into some of the members' questions. Grant David, look, thank you. Um, a subject we sat on council from 2005. And then in this assembly from 2011, neighbourhood renewal has been a, a, a big part of, of a lot of the work that we do. Um, so it is, and uh, some excellent results, very good results. Others that haven't been quite so good. Um, so I suppose it's looking at that outcome-based methodology. 
um, because we know and we've seen it for anybody who's been around long enough, they've seen money being given to various groups or various projects or whatever that might be and not necessarily, and the outcome's not necessarily measured. So it's just that going forward, how, how, how do you see that working then? Well, I think as, as we outlined in the written briefing, I think as a programme we focused more on outputs um, to this point, but the evaluation back in 2014 identified that that was an area that the department needed to do more around in terms of both identifying objective need, but measuring the impact of our work. The ethos of, of neighbourhood renewal it, it, as a concept is to, to lever in additional funding and coordinate the efforts of of the public sector, other government departments, council, statutory bodies, etc. And I think moving more towards an outcome-based approach will help us identify um, the improvements that we are making. We've begun some work on that, um, and if members want any detail, we can we can certainly provide that, or I could bring Colette in. But we're piloting um, a, a different approach in five of our neighbourhood renewal areas to improve the measurements of outcomes. And uh, and obviously, if the pilots show that that um, work is is bearing fruit, then we would look to expand that to, to all of our areas. Um, I should probably mention that the, the work so far has been done on a co-design basis, working with the partnerships and the groups to make sure that, that what we're trying to do works for, for everyone concerned. And then just so I don't have to ask on the, the, issue, the, the areas of, of deprivation and um, has that changed in any way over the years? Um, I remember, again, going back to time, sitting on the, the old DSD committee and looking at this, and we have pockets and areas that are not always identified um, that um, would, would would benefit greatly um, from this type of, 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 of scheme and project. So it's just how often is that, is that looked at, that areas of deprivation? So I suppose I should outline there's kind of probably three components to our work. There's the main neighbourhood renewal programme, which, as I said earlier, targets the 10% most deprived urban areas. We also have the areas at risk programme, which about a dozen areas in that, which looks at those areas that fall within the kind of 11 to 20% most deprived that are at risk, obviously, of descending into the, the, the 10%. And then we have a number of small pockets of deprivation as well. That we, that we work on, which are mostly housing estates in, in areas. But in terms of the overall top 10%, 10% most deprived areas, they're updated um, frequently, probably on about a 10 yearly basis. They are due an update again. Um, they haven't changed, broadly speaking, um, but we think in, in, in any refresh moving forward that we may alter uh, the top 10 would actually change if, if the new measures were brought in from, and maybe just bring John or Colette in just to confirm the date, uh, the multiple deprivation measures, if we were to move to a more updated one, it would be what year? 2017. So, as I say, if we, if we worked off the 2017, uh, which we would plan to do shortly as part of the review, our issue is just making sure that those that would fall out would be properly supported in, in falling out, just to make sure that they, again, don't descend back in. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Uh, members, can you please indicate if you want to ask any questions? I only have one person um, with a hand up at the minute, and that's Fra. If we could bring Fra in. Go ahead, Fra. Sure, thank you very much. And, and again, uh, I'd like to thank the officials for the, the, their, their presentation. And I think uh, for quite a while now, we've been waiting in anticipation uh, for this uh, briefing to take place. I would like to start uh, by, by saying, and uh, yourself and 
uh, other members on the committee have been in their own communities part of uh, the growth of uh, neighbourhood renewal. And I would like to say that, uh, you know, there are many communities that uh, may have sunk, but for the, 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 the help and assistance uh, and the, the finance and the resources provided uh, by the, the, the department and, their, their, and, and, and neighbor, neighborhood renewal. And I was uh, part initially uh, of, because I remember the first week briefing of it, uh, that to see uh, being asked if it would float or not within many communities. Uh, I've always had concerns, although it has changed uh, to, to some degree, uh, that uh, the, the people with the experience and the knowledge uh, is not only the department or other departments, uh, but are the people who work at the cold fields and communities and provide services that, at the end of the day, in many ways, uh, save people's lives. Uh, you you'd raised the point about uh, the, the, the outcomes and uh, was mentioned about outputs, you know, Sometimes it's really difficult uh, to, to, to grasp the importance of what a thousand pound could mean uh, on a regular basis to a local community to keep a program or a project safe, especially uh, in areas of high social uh, depra deprivation. So sometimes for people, it's, it's easy to write off uh, these groups say, well, what would a thousand pound matter? To some people, it means a lot. Uh, for the bigger groups, uh, they, they provide in many areas magnificent programs and projects, as I said early on, that keeps uh, pe people alive. I was part of, a couple of years ago, uh, with a, quite a number of other people from uh, the political life and uh, the communities, uh, the, the presentation that was done in, in Grabner Hall uh, in relation to uh, the, the, the review into neighbourhood renewal. And uh, I've been concerned uh, that we, we have never had sight of uh, what them proposals were, because I think everybody should be part of uh, the, the general discussion uh, into where neighbourhood renewal goes. There are those uh, who have always opposed neighbourhood renewal, but there are many of us, including yourself, Chair, and others, uh, who have fully supported uh, the intention of neighbourhood renewal, uh, and we also can share concerns that... The uh, if uh, the, 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 it, has been, it is removed, uh, then it should, could have dark consequences uh, for not only major areas of social deprivation, but the small pockets uh, that, they, that David spoke to. So it's again, it's about in a long-winded way. Uh, it's about where the review. That maybe just to explain a bit more where the review is at. Uh, when will we be getting sight of uh, some of the proposals that that's sitting there? Uh, when will the committee uh, be part of uh, the discussions and in, in the round shipping uh, the new uh, whatever new neighbourhood renewal comes out the other end of it? And secondly, for once, will we be able to say that uh, have the confidence and faith in communities to be part of that say and shaping the new neighbourhood renewal? At the end of the day, they're the real experts. Thank you. Okay, Chair, if you, if you want me, I maybe address some of Farah's points there in terms of, of the review. I mean, um, so the review, as I said, had started, but has to now be reshaped in light of, of the COVID environment, but probably as well has to be reshaped to fit in with the development of the anti-poverty strategy. Um, so certainly in terms of a timeline, our work will need to dovetail with the anti-poverty strategy. So the anti-poverty strategy will look at 
uh, addressing poverty at, at a number of different levels, individual level, household level, and spatial level. Um, so a place-based approach will be an essential part of the, the development of the anti-poverty strategy. We're currently piloting in five neighborhood rural areas a better approach to identifying need and demonstrating outcomes. So that work will continue. But in other, in other areas that we intend to look at, we will do all of this on a co-design basis, working closely with the neighborhood rural partnerships and the groups themselves to identify some of that grassroots knowledge that Trat talked about, completely right. And COVID, if it demonstrated anything, certainly demonstrated the importance of that on the ground grassroots knowledge um, during the, the, the pandemic. Um, so we wanna tap into that to make sure that the new neighborhood renewal program is tailored around that knowledge and that expertise. So yes, it can give a commitment, we'll be doing it on a co-design basis, and we'll give a commitment that the committee will be a, a key part of that consultation process. Thank you very much, David. Okay, thank you, Fra. Um, okay, I've got Karen, then Alex, then Mark, and then Kelly. So everybody's their hands up now. Can I just ask members to be as succinct as possible with their questions? Thank you, Karen. Thank you, Chair. Uh, first off, I want to declare an interest. My husband works in neighborhood renewal, neighborhood renewal and I worked there previously to this role. Um, thank you so much for your presentation this morning and coming along. I want to commend um, the neighborhood renewal partnerships, workers, and volunteers for their work over the last year, including all the staff in the department um, uh, as well, who were quick to respond um, to the needs of the communities and get the help out through the pandemic. So I want to pass on that thanks at this stage. Um, we heard earlier from supporting people and we heard last week in terms of presentations around pay, terms and conditions. Um, and, and these are also relevant to neighbourhood renewal uh, workers who for over the last 10 years haven't had an uplift or uh, uh, a raise in terms of cost of living or any, anything like that. So I think that's very key for the department to be taken forward, um, aside from the earlier briefing as well. I, I know that it's been it's been looked at, so very much welcome the review of neighbourhood renewal. I know that it's included in that, um, uh, and it's an important piece of work taken forward. Just, David, I suppose you had answered my question there around the anti-poverty stuff around uh, or the strategy, place-based inter intervention. So I'm glad to hear that that's going to be an essential part of uh, that piece of work going forward. Um, and I uh, suppose just wanted to follow on in terms of Fraz point um, that in terms of the review and any work being taken forward, we talk about co-design and it, it is completely important that the community and voluntary sector is involved in that co-design from the very beginning and throughout the whole process, as you say, they've got the expertise. Um, but my question, I'm sorry, I was a wee bit long-winded in getting here, um, uh, just in terms of the review, I think it would be important to ascertain uh, the role and the input from the statutory partners, what they have had and invest in tackling, tackling poverty and what their outcomes have been within the same time frame. David? Yes, uh, I think, Karen, that's a very valid point in terms of, I mean, neighbourhood renewal was supposed to be about joining up um, government and public sector's efforts in these areas to maximise impact. I think uh, there's a lot more we could do, uh, and I certainly think that that's a key part of the review and joining together all of the, the cumulative efforts to, to maximise impact. So that is something that we will be working across the NICS to look at. 
and I suppose uh, I suppose with my own knowledge of working in the in the system or in the in the sector, it's just that as you say that they were supposed to have a key role, but over the years it was very much left to the community and voluntary sector. Um, uh, so I suppose coming out of the review, we would like to see improvements in terms of that. And apologies, David, I thought I had my camera on. <laughs> so. No, you're all right. Yeah, look, we would share that sentiment that, that we do feel that as a government um, departments, that, that there's more that we can do to coordinate and join up much better to have a much greater impact. Thank you, David. Thanks, Chair. Thank you, Karen. Um, if we could bring in Alex, please. Can you, oh, you got me now, right. Okay, Alex, um, go ahead. Yeah, thanks, Chair. Um, thanks for your presentation. Um, neighbourhood renewal is just so important um, for working class communities and trying to enhance and develop and improve everything. And um, I would hit the review to do anything that would reduce that impact, that, that positive impact that's already happened. So just, just one of my main question is, under the review, will you be looking at other areas that never, that maybe missed out and been included as neighbourhood renewals? Will that be part of the review? Um, will funding be discussed um, looking at the potential for increases um, to help um, develop the programmes even more so? And also, um, it was touched on about the actual uh, work that all those involved in neighbourhood renewal in those areas um, and the fact that they haven't had any uh, pay rises in, in many years. Um, it will, will that come under the, the review or is that going to be separate to the review? Thank you. Okay, um, so in terms of the identification of need um, is certainly something that the review would be looking to improve. However, that would be within the kind of the most deprived communities kind of envelope. I think um, obviously, you know, your next question was about the amount of funding. And our view at the moment is that the 18 million pound pot that we have is already being spread across 36 neighborhood renewal areas. So on average, that equates to about half a million pounds per annum, which is a comparatively small amount of money. Uh, obviously, if we increase the number of areas that we are going to target or, or try to help, but still stay within the same funding pot, then you would be spreading the, the, the money even thinner. Um, but I think the identification of need is something the review needs to look at. Um, certainly the funding pot, um, obviously public sector finances are constrained at present. Um, I think it's important that Neighbourhood Renewal demonstrates its impact, which will then help um, demonstrate the need for additional funding and the return that could come from any potential uh, additional funding. In terms of pay, um, Minister Hargey is committed, uh, as you probably all know, to improving the paying conditions of people who are funded through neighbourhood renewal. Um, there's probably two elements to that. There's something that can be done in the short term. And certainly in terms of the review, we want to look at that, not just from a, a paying conditions point of view, but from a community capacity point of view. Paying conditions will be a big element of attracting um, and retaining staff. Uh, we have a problem with turnover in this sector and I think improved terms and conditions would be certainly a step forward in helping us to build community capacity on a longer term basis. So I hope that's some information on your, your three questions. Yeah, thank you very much. Thank you, Chair. 
Thank you. Alex, can I bring then in Mark, please? Uh, thank you, Chair, and thanks to David and the rest of the team. First of all, David and team, I want to apologise for being so dismissive of your initial response uh, to your request for, for a briefing on this and the lack of detail there. And you, you more than made up for it uh, with, with your second one. It was a case of kind of be careful what you wish for. <laughs> Uh, but I want to start then by putting on record my appreciation and my party's appreciation of the good and vital work carried out by and through community groups and neighbourhood renewal partnerships. And that's never been more apparent than through the COVID crisis. And I also want to record and support the, the, the view that workers should be afforded fair pay and terms and conditions. Uh, we support and do support any and every initiative that can tackle the myriad of societal issues that exist and that are nowhere more pronounced than in areas of deprivation. But what I also want to do in the rationale behind seeking this briefing is to establish how successful neighbourhood renewal has been and how successful is it in terms of closing gaps between our most deprived communities and our more affluent ones. Like £18 million a year is a major investment in anyone's book, but how has that contributed to improving outcomes for people in those areas? in terms of health, education, economic opportunity and other areas and what might be the reasons be that it isn't delivering as it was envisaged that it would. Like on paper this looked great and it looks great but in practice is it as great as it looks or as it could be? And of course I am on record several times as having said this, uh, there's been difficulty getting other statutory agencies and departments to play ball. They all buy in but aren't always so keen to, to, to pay in. And I wonder then, is there a problem with the model itself? So there's a problem with the statutory agency side of things. But also I, I'd like to know that why in my own constituency, a FOIL, are so many people, and I mean ordinary people, living in neighbourhood renewal areas, not buying in. And I, like, I, I believe firmly that the potential and essential positive impact of neighbourhood renewal has been hamstrung and not fully realised in part due to a negative wider public perception and that's very prevalent in some areas uh, and, and part of that perception is that neighbourhood renewal is the sole preserve of one particular uh, political party. Now I know groups carry out regular public satisfaction surveys but I would defy any official or, or even any member of the committee to have a walk around some of these areas and ask people on the street what their views are and, and why. You know, are, I'd like to know what our officials aware of these views. Do, do you believe that they're damaging the neighbourhood renewals and wider executive aims to tackle poverty and deprivation? And are there any actions that can be identified to address them? Okay, well again, I think it would fall to the review to look at, at the role of neighbourhood renewal partnerships. Um, I think neighbourhood renewal as a brand um, needs to be refreshed. Uh, and again, the review would be the role in terms of community knowledge and that community is invited to neighbourhood renewal. Um, but there have been instances where uh, partnerships have been like a closed, closed shop to, to certain individuals that haven't been able to, to join, etc. So we are aware where people have brought concerns to the department about the composition of partnerships, but 
there's the other than the code of conduct that the department operates, the, the role of the partnerships membership, uh, et cetera, is down to local partnerships. Uh, I think, Mark, in particular in the Northwest, uh, the work that my team does up there is, is first class. Uh, I think the, the work that goes on in, in terms of the development of the areas and the coordination with other uh, funders um, is first class. And I think there's a lot of good work in that, that area that can can serve as a shining light for, for the rest of the neighbourhood renewal areas. Um, so from my point of view, I do think the role of partnerships is an area that the review should look at, um, just in terms of making sure that we've got the optimal model um, moving forward. And as I said earlier when I was talking to Fra, I think the COVID um, experience over the last 14, 16 months has really proved that that grassroots knowledge really helps government uh, advance its objectives in terms of serving those communities much better. Uh, uh, would concur to your comments and your own staff here in the North don't, don't doubt and have first-hand experience of how hard and effective they, they work. And it goes back to the, the, the partnership thing. There is a very prevalent public perception that there are some people more interested in ownership than they are in, in, in partnership. And that closed shop that you refer to is something that it's almost goes beyond perception now in, in, in some places and really needs tackled if this is to succeed as a model of getting help and lifting standards where it is most needed. You know, if a funding is awarded, and it's not just neighbourhood renewal in, in, in this instance, on the basis of deprivation, sometimes it's hard to see where the incentive is sometimes for some organisations to put themselves out of business effectively by, by, by improving outcomes. Uh, if just a couple of more questions, and one would be, like, what rules exist or what rules are applied in terms of neighbourhood renewal groups and workers being overtly political? I'm not talking about elected representatives, but promoting certain parties and excluding others. Do you know, and, and, and again, there is a serious issue there of, of groups using public money to promote particular political parties. And that's very damaging the credibility of neighbourhood renewal. And it's very detrimental in terms of wider buy-in uh, from the community. Okay, well, look, could I maybe bring Coletta in just to talk a little bit about the code of conduct that partnerships kind of sign up to and the department's role in it? Coletta, if you could come in there, please. Uh, I mean, all the way back in 2003, Mark, as you know, when this, um, when the fund was first established, you know, the department's role there was to try and ensure that the partnerships that were developed, developed themselves in line with, you know, good governance and good guidance. So we did produce a code of conduct, which we are at this stage and will look to audit it at times to ensure that they are following that code of conduct. But aside from that, we also have to be cognizant of the fact that these are voluntary organised, voluntary people. They come onto those partnerships on a voluntary basis. Um, so as much as we will try to try and guide, and as David earlier said, we will try and ensure that people maybe that are left out in the cold, we would go back and say to the lead chair of the partnership, look, we really would like you to consider taking forward this group onto the partnership. Um, and we will make those types of interventions when we need to. But all current audits conducted to date 
Unfortunately, Mark isn't displaying to us the issues that you're raising at, the, at this point. Um, audits to date will show us that money has been, our funding has been used for the interventions that the contracts have been awarded for. Um, so, I mean, I don't think there's a lot more I can say on that, um, unless, Jean, you would have anything to add to it. Um, no, Claire, I totally concur with everything that you've said. Um, there's not really an awful lot more we can do with it because the partnerships are made up of voluntary people joining them. We ha we do get them to sign up to the code of our code of practice, and I haven't personally received any, you know, of those issues either. But maybe throughout the review, when we're looking at the partnerships, it's something that we can take on board. Okay. Well, one of the strands of the partnerships, Mark, I would just like that is to look at partnership and collaboration, and that's one of the future strands. At the minute, the review is still looking at strand one, which is the evidence of need and measure and impact. But as we work through those strands, one of them is about partnership and collaboration, so we will be looking at it moving forward. Yeah, uh, but in terms of audit and that, do you rely on, I suppose, evidence provided to you by partnerships? You know, as opposed to going out on the ground yourselves and stopping random individuals on the street and asking them, or, or, or picking random addresses and asking people, you know, who provide, how independent is the evidence that comes in? And then, in terms of people joining the, the, the partnership boards, what opportunities do people have to, to, to do so and, and when? Because there doesn't seem to be like a regular. Any sort of turnover of personnel and, and, and some of the partnership boards that, that I'd be aware of? Um, what I would say, Mark, is, is that, I, as I've just said to you, we will make interventions to partnership boards if we have approaches from organisations who feel that they would like to take part in them. And we would be really stressing to those partnership jurors that this is something that they should take forward. I don't think at any stage um, in my experience of working with the voluntary sector have we ever saw a refusal there when the department has made such interventions. In terms of going out and stopping people, I mean, Mark, that just wouldn't be part of our role. We do rely on documents brought in from the organisations that we fund to look at the audit, but we will look at other information if it is given to us or sent to us in whatever format. We will look at that, and that's included in our contracts for funding, where the organisations are aware that at any point we will come in and conduct audits or seek further information from them if we believe that there are issues outstanding that needs our intervention. Okay, no, no, that's that's good to hear, Colette. And then, what role does the department have in ensuring that the recruitment for neighbourhood renewal funded posts is carried out fairly and consistently? And what steps have you taken to ensure that that's the case? David, do you want me to take this? I'm happy to do yeah, so. Yeah. Um, in terms of recruitment, um, obviously the organisation is the employer mark and we have to recognise that. What we would ask is that the recruitment is carried out in line with good practice, that it's carried out in line with employment law. And that is what we ask. We ensure that it's advertised properly, that obviously they will get a cohort of people who apply. We do not sit on interview panels. That is not our role. Um, but we do oversee that the 
actual intervention itself in terms of how they conduct the advertisement and how they have conducted the interviews is in line with good practice. No, and again, unless we're given evidence to the contrary, um, you know, we would have no other need to go back and look at that again. But there's always, always there is that the um, opportunity for people if they feel there is the need to come to us to say, look, we don't feel this is correct. Can this be looked at? And of course, we will look at it. Yeah, and in terms of the review, will there be a, a wider public consultation type yes. piece done? Because part of the perception, the negative perception that exists out there, like I said, is one of gatekeeping. So, mm -hmm. so I, it's important that, that you get straight to people and some of those groups, and certainly who, who may be dissatisfied, and you said that, or I don't doubt you, that you're unaware of the existence of, of, of groups and individuals out there dissatisfied or unhappy with, with, with current structures and practices, but, but I, I'm sure they would be forthcoming uh, if and when the opportunity arises. Well, like I said, Mark, they have the opportunity at any stage. At any stage, anybody can write to us, email us, telephone us, and we will be happy to look at what their concerns are. They don't have to wait for it to be part of the review. Um, but certainly, as the review moves forward, I think David has alluded to this, in that if we start looking at new multiple deprivation measures, there is the potential for our investment to have to be moved to other areas if the top 10 has changed, which in all likelihood it probably has. So, you know, th there will be that opportunity where we will look at other areas. We also do intend to look at the boundaries of funding as well as part of this. And yes, in terms of consultation, we have the intention, we have the partnership boards working with us now on a co-design basis, and we will be setting up other boards where there will be input from others in terms of how we are proceeding with the review and any recommendations that come out of the review. Okay. Thank you, Claire. Thanks all. Okay, thank you, Mark. Uh, if we could move on to Kelly, please, Brent Kelly. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, folks. Um, as Mark says, quite a lot of detail. I know we have a copy of slides that you guys have provided, and it's very, very appreciated. Um, I come to this as an MLA who, when I worked in a part of Belfast, was very much involved in neighbourhood renewal, but in my own constituency it's like a foreign word um neighborhood renewal in rural areas is is left out uh, and um, just Colette, when you were talking there about the boundaries of funding i know i have been quite exercised about um previous minister given had given a commitment that population sizes that are below the 5000 could apply for a neighborhood renewal and that's not the case now um and i know that work is ongoing with dera but I'm just wondering, the demographic profile of Northern Ireland has significantly changed. Um, poverty in rural areas is as distinct as it is in urban areas. And I'm just wondering, with that work that you're doing with DERA, how are we ensuring that rural communities are not being left behind while the, this type of money is being invested only in urban areas? Okay, Jared, can I maybe ask you, you to come in to explain some of your role, please? Sure, no problem. Um, Kelly, I listened to the discussion a couple of weeks ago and some of the kind of queries overlapped into my realm, I suppose. Um, I'm one of the, the directors in the 
uh, urban regeneration side with responsibility for regeneration in six of the council areas. So um, when you're talking about the 5,000 threshold, that relates to uh, the, the regeneration uh, interventions of the department. So the department has traditionally focused on urban regeneration in settlements with more than 5,000 population. Um, Minister Given did make an announcement back in 2017 uh, of his intention to move that into smaller settlements. Now, unfortunately, as we all know, the assembly, the executive collapsed shortly after, and uh, that announcement was subject to significant resources being required, uh, a, bid for, a bid for additional budget. Now, unfortunately, that didn't move forward. Um, but since then, uh, we've been, since we've, we've had uh, ministers back again, we've been having discussions with DERA and DFI about working up a collaborative program uh, that would involve the three departments working together uh, to look at uh, regeneration interventions below the 5,000 settlement. So we're, we're working on that at the moment, and there's been some very positive discussions uh, in relation to it, and we're hoping to bring something forward to the Minister for consideration uh, very soon. Well, can I just ask for clarification? And when I look at the key outputs that are happening, I'm very aware of neighbourhood renewal partnerships coming forward, and they are delivering um, some of this work within population areas of less than 5,000. So, for instance, the numbers that are being reported for volunteering community development activities, the numbers of inquiries for, from clients for advice, uh, the number of beneficiaries, including family members, are not all from settlement areas of over 5,000. There are some of those um, organisations that are reaching out into the rural community. So this is where a lot of the um, concern, I believe, comes from, that why, on one hand, um, are you know people who live outside the larger towns able to access some services, yet when it comes to regeneration and renewal in their area, that they're left out. And I think I would welcome that discussion with Dara. I'm very concerned as, a, as an MLA that there's actually duplications going on here, folks. Why not just bring the whole lot in together? I appreciate that it's cross-departmental, but under the programme for government, we're supposed to be working cross-departmentally. Is there any way that we can look in the review at reducing down the duplication of what's happening within communities and DERA and bringing this all into one? Why do we have to divide rural and urban? I mean, I think David can come in a second, I suppose, about the, the neighbourhood renewal dimension, but there is a wee bit of confusion here, I suppose, or... Um, between our difference between the two. So my remit involves physical regeneration, and that's where yep. the 5,000 threshold comes into it. Um, David, I'm not sure in terms of neighbourhood renewal um, how, how that works for you. I don't think it's the same uh, situation. In terms of the rural areas for uh, settlements below 5,000, DERA has been delivering some programmes in those smaller settlements. Now, it's not the, the exact same type of intervention that we have been doing in the urban settlements, but um, very much so, I, I would agree that we need to, to work closely together with the other departments, because um, by bringing together the, the range of expertise and our relevant teams and our resources, I think we can deliver much better outcomes in those smaller settlements as well. Uh, so we're very keen to do that, and it's it's been very positive in terms of the discussions and the views of ministers so far. Uh, so we're hoping we will be able to bring something forward on the physical regeneration side, Kelly. And maybe just add to that then, Kelly, in terms of, of, of the neighbourhood renewal piece. Yes, the way the programme is designed, it's for the most deprived communities and settlements of 5,000 and over. But as you say, that's just a, 
an, an, an arbitrary figure that can be looked at in terms of what is the best approach. Uh, we work collaboratively with DERA, uh, and again, even in neighbourhood rural areas, a lot of our staff help the area regardless of, of you know, the boundaries or, or where the numbers are. Um, we'd always go that extra mile anyway. So I do think the review is an opportunity to look again at that kind of division between urban and rural and where the, the bar or the boundary is set and whether that's the most optimal model that we'll have. I wanted to ask as well um, about the review and how it will go forward. Um, to be honest, I really detest the term communities because I believe that we're all one community, but I am very aware. And I have to say, um, just to re uh, agree with Mark, um, there are gatekeepers in my area um, that do prevent um, some people from having access. And to be honest, if you're talking to the people who or are already within the system. Um, some of them are the gatekeepers. Um, and I have to say that they used um, money being invested through single identity communities um, to um, strengthen their presence. And for instance, I can say with my hand on my heart, I am not as an elected representative permitted to go into areas because of some of the work of, of the renewal work. Um, because of that political attitude that's there. But I'm just wondering, in the review, will there be a consideration on how much money is going into building capacity of single identity communities? I agree that building capacity is certainly needed because if we have to have, if we are to have appropriate co-production and co-design, um, people need to be able to come to the table and have their voices heard in a way that, that's suitable for, for the needs of all of you guys. But I'm just wondering, how much money do we keep pumping into single identity communities? Um, where is the outcome being measured there to see if it's achieving any difference? There's a lot of outputs talked about in the paperwork that you've provided, you know, numbers of people. But when are, how are you going planning to measure how the outcomes are being measured. Um, it's just because outputs tell us a glimpse at one particular time. Outcomes, as we know, is, is a longer-term objective. Yeah. Clive, can I maybe ask you just to outline yeah. the, the pilot work that we're doing? Yeah, the, the pilot work, Kelly, that we're currently doing, um, after listening to the partnerships and their chairs, one of the issues they had was all they seemed to be reporting back on was number grinding. So it was, you know, X number doing this, X number. And obviously they weren't happy with that. They wanted us to be able to see the impact more closely to home as to how we were impacting on individuals, families and the communities or the areas that they live within. So to do that, as much as we are aligned to the programme for government and using the outcome-based accountability model, we have decided with the partnership forum to, alongside that, develop a hybrid model where we are using a method called, it was used by Inspire and Impact through the Built and Change Trust who brought it forward. I don't know, Kelly, if you're aware of that in 2012. Yeah, I had did a lot of work on that. So I thought that if we were able to combine both approaches, then certainly we will be able to give a better picture of what our investment is doing be able to do a lot more baseline surveying out there, be able to do a lot more case studies out there, so as we can really see the flavour of what we're doing. And it's not just X number attended a training course and the question then ends up being, so what? What happens after that? But obviously to do that, Kelly, we're currently on yearly funding cycles. And therefore, to measure impact, you know, and anybody that's impact measurement of FAE will know you need that longer term cycle as well. 
So part of the review will be looking at longer funding cycles potentially in order to ensure that we can measure short, medium and those longer term impacts. You know, let's follow the kid who got the after school stuff and then who got a job and how that impacted on them. Then, you know, had their own family, how that has impacted. You know, that's what we want to be able to do moving forward. We want to see what this investment is actually doing. Absolutely. No, I agree with you completely. And the Building Change Trust work is was of its time and fantastic. Um, the one thing I was wondering about these outputs, I know that um, I worked in the community of voluntary sector, everybody you knows this, I've worked in the community of voluntary sector before I became an MLA. Um, and the funding stream that I would have received from the then DRD, um, they changed tack where they said, um, no, 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 you can't tell me how many people, you have to tell me how many different people attend these things because... Um, they, they said, you know, you could tell me that 50 people attend each course or each whatever it is that you're bringing forward. But again, so what? How many different people have attended those? You know, what's the differential? How much is the spread of the value of the work that you're doing? And to be honest, it was quite difficult to actually bring forward because there were usual suspects who are at everything um, and it doesn't expand beyond them. And it forced a way of working to change. I'm just wondering if there's that already through and I appreciate single year budgets are hateful um, unfortunately I found in my previous jobs um, I think I had one two year period where I had a, a, a contract of employment that was more than a year um, even though I was there for 16 years but um, I'm just wondering is there any anything to do that we can do with outputs at this stage that could change how the reporting is so instead of how many went to that how many yeah. different people are being covered by your help yeah I think, you know, if we let the five pilots run uh, as they currently are at the moment, Kelly, we will be able to establish from there if the model that we have proposed will work. And that in itself will then eradicate what you're talking about in terms of you're just getting those single numbers. We will be able to bring in that Section 75 stuff that maybe is important and needs to be captured in terms of ethnic background, who's going to be there, you know, what is their culture, that sort of stuff. Obviously, it is important, given that we're now living in a multicultural society. Of course, it needs to be done. It needs to be measured. Yeah, and that's where I would love to see this equity piece coming forward, you know, where the investment on the ground is being balanced so that we can actually encourage those who are not engaging to come forward. The last thing I want to just mention, just back to what Mark was saying earlier about the code of conduct, um, I have to say, there are barriers there and I would ask in the review that there is um, something done about the barrier where people who are not engaged or can't get engaged or excluded from being engaged don't have to actually go to the department or to the partnership to raise concerns that there's another independent method because okay. quite often when people do have concerns it's made very clear to them that they can't raise those concerns because it could have a wider implication for them or the community organisation that they work for or volunteer with. So I think there does need to be something there about um, how a more independent um, complaint system or concern system could be brought forward. And the same needs to be said on the other side. There does need to be a system where you know, credit where credit's due, where there's very good work happening that people can input their compliments as well, but I just am concerned. I know in my area there will be organisations who feel that they cannot raise their heads above the parapet. They can't bring forward a complaint for fear of the strength of the organisation that's in control. Um, so it's just if there could be something to review about that. 
Okay. I think we could include that when we're looking at the strand under partnership and collaboration. Yes, we, we could have a look at that, Kelly. But what I would say is that currently, as you're well aware, people can raise these things anonymously as they wish to do. So there are methods there to do that if they feel that's needed at this point. Yep. No problem. Thank you. Okay, there's no other member uh, wants to ask questions. Um, I think that that um, there's plenty of uh, information that you have heard there as well. I would probably just say that absolutely, if Fra wants to come back in again, I've been told, I'll bring him in a minute. Um, I'm also aware of, of, of issues around gatekeepers and um, others trying to break in um, to be part of the whole neighbourhood renewal. So it, this is not something that is in any one area. I, I'm aware of this across areas. So I think that's something that we do, you do need to take seriously, that it is happening. Um, can I just bring Fry in? Sorry, Fry, come on ahead. Sure, uh, thank you very much for letting me know. I'll be, I'll be uh, brief. Uh, as somebody who's been a uh, member of a Neighbourhood Renewal uh, Partnership uh, from its inception, uh, I, um, and, and certainly uh, with the community I live in, uh, that, that that group has a great deal of respect in the work that is carried out. Uh, just like they asked uh, Margaret question, because some of the language that has been used here is reminiscent uh, of the SDLP language back in the 80s that led to, or helped lead to, uh, the whole question of political vetting. And I hope that's not the road that Mark is talking about going down. Because I also believe that uh, there are places available in neighbourhood renewal partnerships uh, for politicians, and uh, has Mark taken up any of them uh, positions? And uh, if he has, has he raised the issues himself at the, these these things? Uh, so uh, I have difficulties with what he says, and I suppose I would defend anybody's right to participate in, 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 in any organisation, any group uh, if they are going to bring with them. Uh, the, the betterment of the community and, and, and the work that they want to do. Thank you. Okay, thank you, Frab. Um, I, I, I don't want to open this up to a discussion on he said, she said, and what's going on in each particular area. Um, we do know that there's issues in some areas, and I, I mean, I know as well from my own area, um, and Kelly has mentioned, but I think we'll leave that with our the folks that have come in to brief us here to dig a bit deeper and to go and look at some of those issues raised. Mark has his hand up, he wants to come back in. So I'll, I'll let you in, Mark, but we, we do need to move on. We have an hour left and two briefings still to go. Mark, go ahead. I, I'm sorry, Chair, I'm conscious that I'm a committee member and, and, and not a, a witness here. So I'm not used to be getting asked questions at committee. My very points are about widening and maximising participation in neighbourhood renewal partnerships and maximising public buy-in to this project and ensuring the effectiveness of it and other executive attempts to alleviate property or poverty and tackle social deprivation. In terms of the language I've used and me promoting vetting, the problem that I have raised is that there is something, there's a perception, sorry, that there's something akin to vetting already going on within partnerships and groups. But are you a member of any partnership board? Right, um, a discussion to have. Folks, um, okay, so uh, I, you've asked your question, and Marcus, come back there. Um, it's not a discussion for us to have as a committee as to where we sit and what we do. 
Um, I think we leave it now for the, um, the officials to go back and look at some of these issues that has been raised. That is their job to do that. Um, and um, if we need to get you back in, I mean, certainly we'll want to know the results of the review. You will be back in again in front of us whenever we get yeah. that. And yeah, sure. we will have, the, have you back in again, hopefully, um, after recess. Um, we can discuss these issues further. And I know, I suppose, it's incumbent on all of, on all of us as, as MLAs to maybe look at again at our own areas and what the membership is made up of. Um, I know I'll certainly be doing that in my own area. Uh, and having a look at that again, um, because I know there are issues, um, it's certainly from an MLA level being involved in any of this, um, is, uh, there are issues, um, maybe on a council level, it's much easier, but MLA level, um, I, I find it quite difficult as well. So, um, can I leave that with you? Um, and thank you very much yeah, for your attendance sure. today. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks very much. Thank, thank you. you. Thanks, folks. Thank you. All right, we're going to move swiftly along. As I said, we have two more briefings and we have just in and around an hour to get through the two briefings. So I'm going to say to you all again, whenever you are asking questions, can you just get to the point as quickly as possible? Um, uh, we don't want to end up that we have to ask um, the, the briefing on post office accounts to come back another week um, when we, we've had such a lot of correspondence. So I'm going to move then to agenda item 8, which is departmental briefing on labour market interventions. You'll find this at page 75 of your meeting pack and then can I ask that Deidre Ward and Roisin Sloan be brought into the spotlight and if you could take all the MLAs out of it while they, uh, they do their bit. Just bear with us a moment folks. There we go, I see Deidre and uh, can I start my apologies, Chair? My camera isn't working at the minute, but I'm Roisin Sloan, and I'm here, OK? I see your name, Roisin. Good to have you here with us. OK, Deidre, is it yourself that's going to kick off? It with is, a, a it is brief? yes. Thank you, Chair. Thank yes. Um, uh, I welcome the opportunity to brief the committee today on some of the labour market interventions that we've been taking forward. So as the committee is aware, COVID's had an unprecedented impact on the local economy and the labour market. But there are some grounds for optimism as the, as the economy returns to growth. We currently have approximately 54,000 people claiming unemployment benefits, uh, and that's those who are searching for work under Universal Credit or Job Seekers Alliance. So this is 15% less than a year ago, but about 78% more than the count in March uh, 2020. The current claimant count is very similar to levels previously seen in 2014, and we anticipate that the claimant count will rise to around 62,000 in October 2021 after the COVID job retention scheme ends. So government has worked to support the economy, but numbers uh, being supported are now less than half at, than that of peak levels. And the take-up of furloughs still remains very high, uh, as committee members will know, in the hospitality, arts and entertainment sectors. There's limited data on the intentions of local employers in respect of their furloughed staff when that furlough scheme comes to an end. The focus of the labour market interventions we've introduced are on young people and the work ready. That is, those who are ready to be re-employed but need um, help to renegotiate the process of finding work. So I'll update you first on progress, but I wanted to set out my plans for the next wave of labour market interventions. 
We know from the previous recession in 2008 that a peak in unemployment led to a long peak in long-term unemployment around six months later. Unemployment is expected to peak in October 2021 after the COVID job retention scheme ends, and we face a challenge in forecasting the impact on long-term unemployment this time around. Although the dynamics of the labour market and recovery are likely to be different now, the, long, the number of long-term unemployed is expected to rise significantly. As a result, the next phase of labour market interventions will focus on the long-term unemployed, people with disabilities and people with health conditions. The department received 12 million of funding for development of programmes through Employability NI for long-term unemployed and economically inactive people. A new provision in this area is in an early stage of development. A regional labour market partnership was established in May 2021, led by DFC, and the membership includes a range of stakeholders, including other government departments such as economy, justice and health, councils involved in cities, deeds, and representations from Solus NI. And work is currently underway to establish the 11 interim local labour market partnerships within the existing council boundaries. And this model will bring together local stakeholders together in a single partnership, benefiting from local knowledge and expertise to help identify and address labour market challenges specific to the local area. It's anticipated that all 11 interim local labour market partnerships will be established and that local delivery will be in place within the current financial year. Interim arrangements will be in place from 21 to 23, while the labour market partnership model develops further and the learning from the interim period will assist in the design and full implementation of the model anticipated from April 2023. Now to update you on our initial phase of labour market interventions. So the Refresh Work Experience Programme launched on the 12th of April 2021 and it provides job-ready unemployed people with work experience opportunities so they can gain employability skills in a work setting. A new strand of the programme called the Opportunity Guarantee provides young people with longer lasting placements and a guarantee of an interview for a job or an apprenticeship at the end of the placement. And this additional incentive payments have been introduced for participants and employers. In the two months since this has been introduced, there's been 98 placements offered and 18 filled. While the number of placements on offer has gradually been increasing, it can take a number of weeks for the offered placements to be filled, as it takes time for the job coaches to match the suitable participants to the opportunity. Um, the trick and the success to the, to the work placement is always going to be matching the, matching the people very exactly to the opportunities that we have on offer to get the best outcomes for the individuals taking up uh, a placement opportunity. The number of placements filled is expected to increase in the coming weeks. A new service, Work Ready Employability Service, has been introduced to provide people who are work ready with basic employability skills to help get them back to work. And it's designed to complement what the work coaches offer. So it includes CV building, job search techniques, interview skills, confidence building, and personal development. The contract commenced on the 26th of May, 2021. And up to today, 65 people have been referred 164 individual modules. 
as referrals to res are a potential outcome from an interview between a work coaching client, there's a delay after the contract commencement before there'd be a normal flow of referrals to, to the programme is established. Um, we're, we're monitoring those referrals on a weekly basis and a monthly basis. Expanded support is now available through Advisor Discretionary Fund, ADF. So work coaches are now allowed to spend up to £1,500 in 12 months to address a barrier a person faces when trying to gain employment, progress towards employment, or progress within employment. And this includes self-employment. In the two months since the expanded level was introduced, there's been about 300 applications approved. Agreement has been obtained from the executive to make changes to the universal credit regulations to allow the ADF grant to be used in the calculation of a person's childcare cost element of UC for eligible claimants moving into employment. This will be available from October 2021 and will be paid directly to a registered childcare provider. The grant will also be included within the ADF £1,500 limit over the 12-month period. The Job Start Scheme was introduced from the 2nd of April 2021, and by the 4th of June, over 600 employers had applied for funding to provide over 1,800 job opportunities. Employers applying to the scheme cover all 11 council areas across Northern Ireland. 381 job start opportunities have been approved and 14 young people have started on a job start job. The response to the scheme has been remarkable, but not without its challenges. There have been gaps in the information provided by employers, which has resulted in additional work for the team trying to gather what is needed. So changes have been made to the application process and more staff have been recruited to process the applications so jobs can be advertised and young people appointed more quickly. I'm also pleased to welcome 14 young people with disabilities into the department this week and they'll be working under the Job Start Scheme in posts right across the department for nine months. This is a great development for the scheme and we hope to expand that right across the NICS and its ALBs in the coming months. We're also looking forward to rolling out the other pilots working alongside colleagues in health, justice and the executive office. And these will focus on young people who are care experienced, those with convictions and those at risk of paramilitarism. But we're very happy to take your, uh, your questions on labour market interventions and subject to the, to the committee wishing it to be the case, We'd be very happy to keep updating you and coming back to you to keep, keep you up to date with the numbers that are progressing through the schemes and how the pilots are, are working for us. I would also suggest that you maybe want to hear for some of the young people who are taking place in Job Start or in fact the employers who are employing them on the scheme and we'd be happy to consider how we could facilitate this for the committee. And uh, Dave, I could just go, if I could just add to that, Chair, um, the, the numbers to date up to yesterday were 804 employers who have applied for the scheme, offering 2,671 job opportunities, and we now have 43 young people into employment. Brilliant, very good. Look, thank you for that. I know it took a, a little while to get to where we've, we've yeah. got to, and that's fair enough. I'm not going to go into that. Um, and it, it certainly is, I think you used the word remarkable, it is. The, the uptake has been fantastic there. 
Um, and you mentioned there about having to recruit extra staff. Just to ask, for, firstly, um, is that sufficient within your budget for the programme um, to recruit, or have you a sufficient budget rather um, to recruit the extra staff? And then just to ask, you mentioned there are about 14 young people with disabilities working within the department. I take it they're what they're working under the job start scheme then as part yeah. of that. And then they ask that again further on to that. Um, have, has there been um, any response? It maybe says it here somewhere, you know, from the likes of our local councils uh, and some of those other places of, of, that are we'd seen were statutory agencies um, that have uh, applied to be job start employers. Um, so just to ask those sort of questions first. Yeah, uh, happy to take that. Yes, we do have the costs within the budget to pay for the staff, and we monitor. We'll continue to monitor. Um, you know, if we need to add more staff to up the process in times, then we do that. We're watching this very closely, so uh, we'll continue to keep that under consideration. As to the 14 who started with disabilities, yes, they're under the Job Start scheme, so they will be with the department for nine months, and they're in various posts, including policy posts and um, uh, just uh, right across the department. But that's cohort one. That we were we we had to work out the processes with our colleagues uh, in NICSAR and with the disability sector to recruit young people with disabilities to come in to work for us. Uh, that that's only that's only a starting cohort. We would like to see that continue to roll out. So that's just our our first group coming in, and and the minister is is meeting some of those young people next week on on Wednesday uh, to welcome to the department, but. I'd like to see us starting work now on cohorts two, three, four, moving forward. We're a very big department. We can do better uh, than just 14 people uh, coming in. And we also are going to speak to the rest of the civil service with an ask for them and for their ALBs uh, to consider what roles they might be able to bring young people in on JobStart, both in the specialist pathways like disability, they're experienced or returning citizens and or young people who are not in those specialist pathways. So DSC, for example, in historic environment, it's the um, division is looking to see, can it bring in some young people to work in, in our historic sites? And we are, we are working that process through um, as we speak. As to the statutory agencies and councils and others, and some of DSC's big ALBs, then absolutely. Um, USIL is one of our ALBs has already um, uh, registered and has taken 14 young people. We're in discussions with others like um, the housing executive um, uh, and Armagh Planetarium have taken someone. We're in discussions with libraries and others, but we are talking to councils and uh, we are talking to other big statutory bodies as well. And just to add as well, one of the councils that we have been engaging with, Chair, um, has actually offered an assistant planner position to one of our young people. And as far as I'm aware, a young person with a disability is actually going into that post, which is a great opportunity for that young person. No, that's that's fantastic news, and, and certainly within those sort of statutory bodies in the civil service, there are great opportunities, and we know that um, opportunities can arise. Um, for some people who thought that for a career in some of those uh, genres was maybe out of reach, they can see that actually yes. it's not. Um, it's very much within yes. reach. That, that's really positive. I'm, I'm, I'm delighted to hear all of that. just want to ask you one question then around the, uh, the 11 labour market partnerships. 
Um, just a, a time frame whenever we'll see those be established. And I know that there's been money set aside for that, whether that is for the partnerships to roll out uh, schemes or whatever that might be. Um, there, I, I would assume also then those partnerships within our councils will also receive some sort of funding to enable those partnerships to take place. Because that's always a worry yeah. when we have things down to our local councils and we know it's because we have plenty of local councillors within all of our parties that will say to us, yes, you keep giving us these things, but you don't give us any money to follow. Um, but they will be supported, I would take it, um, through that. Yes, the, um, we have set aside a portion of the, the monies to uh, give the council uh, money to staff and have capacity to help develop and run the labour market partnerships. As to their being established, some of the councils have already established them, Others are moving towards doing that, but all 11 councils are in the process at the moment of, of, of looking at the need for employability and provision within their council area, matching the requirements of local employers, uh, and they're developing action plans based on need as we speak. Uh, those will be coming in to us uh, um, from as early as July. As I say, some councils further ahead than others, but they're all working to develop those action plans as we speak now. And some, yes, already have the infrastructure in place linked to their community planning infrastructures. Okay, I just have one more. All right, final question. I'll be very quick. If Kelly waiting to come in, if any other members <coughs> want to ask questions, please put your hand up. Um, just about those follow-on conversations with the Department of the Economy, whether it's around apprenticeships or it's whether it's around access to courses um, with with this this great experience that our young people are getting, um, if any of that can be used uh, as, a, as an access route um, on to um, whether that is further or higher education. So just has there been those conversations taking place yet? Yes, we have had um, very fulsome conversations with the Department for Economy all the way along and we wanted to design pieces that were pathways for young people that they wouldn't come to a, a cliff edge, at the will, if you will, at the end of a piece of a provision and then just fall back into economic inactivity. So at five months, we will be speaking to both the young people and the employers um, who are taking up those job start opportunities and we'll be encouraging the employers to keep those young people on permanently, or in fact, to consider uh, taking them uh, forward towards an apprenticeship, if that's appropriate in, in the sector or with that particular employer as we move forward. We will also be working with the, the, the young people will be working with the job coaches, who will of course be putting the full remit of provision, including um, uh, further education in front of young people to help signpost them to what might be next and what might be appropriate for them. And Chair, just to add to what Georgie has said about the engagement with the Department of Economy, I've been working very closely with them and you'll know that we widened our scheme out beyond those just young people just on universal credit like Kickstart. We've gone out to those who might be neat or those who are on other benefits. So we've widened it right out. On that basis, I've also engaged with the Department of Economy in terms of young people who are 16, 17 year old who are on training for success and maybe have no qualifications. This pathway allows them to go from training for success to job start to an apprenticeship. So what a great story of a young person was able to go from no qualifications through TFS, through Jobstart and into a level two accredited qualification through an apprenticeship journey.
No, I think it's all very positive and we'll, we'll look forward and most we'll certainly we'll have you in again from time to time. And I would absolutely love to have some of those young people come in and brief the yeah. committee, um, uh, you know, sort of at the latter part of the year when they've that confidence yeah. to come in and tell us just yeah. how this has made an impact on their lives. I'm going to move on because our time scales today are dreadful. So I've got Kelly and then I've got Mark. So can I bring in Kelly, please? Thank you very much, Chair, and thank you very much, Deirdre and Roisin. Um, very appreciated that job starts finally up and running and, and making the difference. Um, Deirdre, you mentioned about um, young people, looked after young people returning citizens and people with disabilities, um, and I'm, I have a particular interest. I just want to find out when they're heading, um, whether it's in the department or a council or wherever they're heading to, uh, what support are they being provided with? I know you've talked about there's £1,500 available um, and that can cover childcare, for instance, and so on, but there would be those people who need additional support that would normally be provided by another body. Um, thinking of workability in the past, um, how is that being provided? And uh, Deirdre, have I committed that one for you, if that's yeah, okay? Yeah, uh, uh, thanks for your question, Kelly, a very good one. Um, we do want to do something with these young people who are in care. So I've been working with the Department of Health and also the five trust areas. Um, we've written to the chief executives um, of the trust areas to get buy-in for Jobstart. And what we're planning to do is provide um, 12 opportunities in each of the five trust areas. So we're working closely with the trusts themselves. And they also have care workers who work with the young people. So we're looking at some kind of a wraparound service that will help that young person so when they do go into a job start opportunity either within the trust or with another employer sympathetic to the needs of those young people that that wraparound support will be there throughout the opportunity and that will stop the young person dropping out and obviously these young people have lots of barriers as well to be addressed as they go along so if a young person had to pause the job start opportunity to maybe get over a barrier or a hurdle, then the flexibility within the scheme is there. We want the scheme to suit the young person as much as we can, so um, we intend to make this as flexible as possible so that we can do that, um, and that's how we're planning to go forward. So we'll be able to report back in a few months' time on how that's actually progressing. I'm just I, would, I, would, I would also add that, that young people will also be able to avail, uh, avail of um, access to work, um, so if they need that additional support through access to work, particularly young people with disabilities, for example, then that's also available to them while they're on Jobstart. Um, there are some young people coming to us who have been on ESF programs and some of that ESF provision will support. And again, there are some of the young people who are starting with us in the department who are unworkable and that will, that will continue. So uh, as well as um, our team of work psychologists within the department, will help us understand what's the best way to support both the young person and the line managers to make sure that everyone gets the best out of that opportunity and the young person gets the best possible employability skills uh, to help them move into permanent work. And Kelly, just to add, so 25 of those 60 opportunities that I mentioned will go into a trust apprenticeship and that will turn into a full-time position within the trust. That's the plan in terms of the direction of travel. Okay, I'm just very keen that, for instance, include youth who have done fantastic work with coming out of care, that, that you know, 
that their experience is not ignored in this. Um, it's the same with the employers. You know, um, Workability has worked with so many employers to enable that support to be there. I'm just quite keen that that continues on because these young people are the furthest from the labour market and while they're being supported to go in, what we don't want to happen is that they can't continue on. At the access to employment, for instance, it's grand if you know how to fill out forms, but if you don't have somebody to help you to fill out forms for the money, you know, it, it, it can get quite difficult. My next one is then um, job start seems to be going on ahead. I know the minister had mentioned in the past, um, you know, get this one up and running. We know through COVID the number of young people who are in unemployment um, and the type of jobs that maybe would have been open to them, even part-time jobs in the past are not prevalent but we also have older people and I'm in that category now um, and I'm just wondering is there any plans at this stage to look at, at people outside of the job start age brackets and what the department's thinking about you know for the over 30s or the over 50s and um, what's coming forward for those guys? So what we're doing in terms of that is uh, we mentioned in the briefing that we, we um, have some money to look at long-term unemployment so we're working with our uh, We've done in the past sometimes some sort of big one-size-fits-all bits of provision. And what we'd like to do moving forward, both with the Labour Market Partnerships co-commissioning with the councils, but also if regional provision is needed, is understand actually what are the tailored needs of the groups of those who are long-term unemployed and do we um, tailor our provision and target it and segment it against the needs of individual groups so we have our analysts in the department at the minute drilling down into the long-term unemployed information to try and help us understand, is there, for example, a gender bias? Is there an age bias? Is there a rural-urban split? And therefore, do we need to target things differently to support segments of customers, perhaps in a place-based arrangement to help them move forward, rather than we take and um, potentially a regional, one, more one-size-fits-all um, arrangement. So we'd like to get the real deep insight as much as we can from, um, from the data of who is currently in that long-term unemployed uh, group of customers to see what is the best response there for them to support them. So for example, if people were unemployed um, pre-COVID, it may be that they have more barriers or challenges in terms of accessing the, the labour market because we were nearly at full employment. However, if you've been made unemployed since COVID, it may be that you had employability skills because you were in a job, but that has been impacted by the labour uh, market changes due to COVID. So I would like to see, even at that basic level, um, what is the split um, in order that we are more targeted in the use of our, our monies to, to support people in a it, just in a more targeted way that therefore is likely to achieve better outcomes for them. And Kelly, I can just pick up on your Include Youth comment. Yeah, I too recognise the sterling work that Include Youth are doing in this area. They are part of my stakeholder group and um, I do have regular communication with them. So yes, we, we have that one um, bottomed out for you. Yeah, brilliant. Um, to be honest, Adri, you just give music to my ears because um, for years I have been very aware of, of those people who are furthest from the, the, the job market and from being employees um, who've gone through NVQ after NVQ um, you know courses 
lifelong learning, they keep on going through this circle, but then they hit 30 or 40 or 50 and it's all about young people and they leave those those folk behind. So if I can put a shout out for people who have um, extra needs um, to be considered as part of that cohort of um, giving particular help, I would certainly do that. But thank you very much, folks. Much appreciated. Good luck with the job start. And I can't wait to hear the next update. Thank you. Thank, thank you, Kelly. Okay, thank you. Um, and then if we could bring in Mark, please. Uh, thank you, dear Ashton, for that update. <laughs> thank you for all the work that you've done on this. And it's been something of a labour of love uh, for, for yourselves and, and your colleagues. Uh, Kelly, as, as usual, it touched on some of the points that I was going to raise. But just one, and it's in terms of, I know you spoke, it was in a different context, dearly, but you spoke of the the need to drill down and for the, the, the deeper insight and, and the stuff here, but it's regards this programme itself. And I, I'm just wondering, see, with regards to collecting the data and disability, yeah. has that been broken down at all into areas of disability, like between physical, mental health, learning, sensory, and, and, and so forth? Because this will be very important to identify if there are gaps in, in participants yeah. in the job start and if there are gaps in the provision or you know, where, where yeah. we are. Yeah, we, we, we are going to try and capture that information that will be recorded. It will not be maybe the level of granularity that we all would like, but the job coaches are going to record and we currently do measure those who are um, uh, seeking job start opportunities who have a disability then on a broad level we're, we're trying to capture what that disability might be. Um, so yes, I agree that there's a, a, a dearth of informa empirical information in this, in this space. I should add, and it, it's not in relation to this briefing, but both for yourself and Kelly, we, are, we have commissioned a piece of research in terms of um, work and disability by the University of Ulster. Um, which is, is just commencing now, and we would hope to have a report on that in September of this year, which, because we feel, we feel the absence of really um, solid empirical evidence of what are the challenges people with disabilities are facing in relation to accessing work, retaining work, and perhaps progressing within work. Um, uh, uh, and, and, and so we have commissioned that research uh, but yes, within Dobstart, we are we are reporting um, disability. But maybe Roisin, you would want to come in on that. Yeah, just to add, Mark, that obviously you will know that we have extended the scheme to nine months for those with disabilities, so we will need some kind of evidence of the disability, so we will be recording that and we will have some data for you later on as more young people join the scheme. Okay, uh, th thank you, ladies. Okay, thanks, Mark. Um, thank you, Deirdre. Thank you, Roisin. Um, that thank has you. been a, a, a nice positive briefing session to get, so it has, which is we welcome <laughs> very much after a very long morning. Um, so thank you, and um, yeah, we'll have you back in again then after recess, and you can give us those updates on how it's progressing. Yeah. But no, yeah. well done. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Thanks very much. Bye. 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 Okay, members, we're going to move swiftly on to agenda item nine, which is our departmental briefing on post office card accounts. You'll find this item at page 104 of your packs. And then can I welcome to the meeting Linda Williams and Roy McGivern. Um, Linda and Roy, you're both very welcome to our meeting today. 
So I think it's yourself, Linda, is going to begin by giving us a short brief. Um, just a reminder, we're under tight timescales here at the moment. But um, so go ahead, Linda. Thank you very much, Chair. Um, thank you very much for the opportunity to brief committee this afternoon on the future method of payment project. Um, I'm Linda Williams, uh, Director for Governance and Commercial Services with the Department for Communities. And I'm joined today with, by, with Roy McGivern, um, who is our Head of Commercial Services. So I'm aware from previous correspondence, um, Chair, that the committee members have a significant interest um, in the rollout of this project and the and its potential impacts arising from the closure of post office accounts um, or post office cards accounts. Whilst this project was uh, first launched or initiated back in March 2019 and due to close in 2021, its implement, implementation has been delayed due to the ongoing pandemic. Since the beginning of this year, um, the Department of Works Pensions has been working closely with the devolved administrations in progressing the planned migration of customers from the existing post office card accounts um, to either mainstream banking services or new payment exception services. Um, it's, uh, it's important to emphasize, I think, from the outset that this project is intended to improve the level of service provided to our customers in accessing their benefits and their pension payments. Um, continually, uh, continuity of payment will be guaranteed, although it is acknowledged that for some of our customers, any transition of this nature um, may present challenges. It, it is the government's preferred policy to pay all benefits and pensions electronically into a standard bank account, a building society account, a credit union account, or a basic bank account um, of the customer's choice. Um, there is no cost to the public purse in this method of payment, and it, it does offer customers access to an additional range of financial services. Customers will be provided with a range of support services to enable them to switch their benefit or pension payments into a mainstream account or to open a new account. Um, for those customers who are unable to access or manage a mainstream account, a new single uh, payment ex or new single payment exception service will replace the existing post office card account and the HMG payment exception services. So as you'll know from the briefing paper members, um, at the 31st of May 21, there were approximately 47 customers still in Northern Ireland remaining on the POCA service and 61 still using the HMG PES service um, a mobile. And of these customers, uh, in terms of profile members, about 67%, circa 67% of those are pension age or beyond. And at the moment, we know that there is about 500 to 1,000 of those transferring to accounts on a weekly basis. So in terms of the future method of payment on HMG PES, currently only 6% of the DWP customers across the pay receive payment through one of the exception services. And a key aim of this project is to significantly reduce the volume of customers using the current payment exception services, whilst ensuring that a fit-for-purpose replacement service is available to those customers with a genuine need. DWP has recently signed a contract with a new provider called Amovo um, to deliver a new single exception service to customers across the UK who continue to require this service. And that new service will enable customers to obtain cash payments across an increased network of local, local, local outlets. And it's due to commence in August 2021. So we will see the output of potential outlets rising from 29,000 currently to over 63,000 um, across the UK. DWP, on behalf of this department, to customers at approximately just under 9,000 letters per month, 
um, encouraging them to switch payments into a mainstream account ahead of the POCA account ending. This is to ensure that customers have time to consider and have sufficient advance notice to afford it to, make, to, to transfer to that mainstream account. Um, and due to COVID um, and the delay associated with the POCA, the programme is now due to close in the Many POCA customers or post office customers have converted to a mainstream bank account and are still visiting their local post office branch to withdraw their money. Um, this includes a total of about 28,000, just under 28,500, 28,465 customers have in Northern Ireland have converted during the period from February 2020 to the end of May 2021. A summary of the new payment exception service and the key benefits set are set out in paragraph nine of your briefing paper. And in the interest of time, we're, we're happy to address any questions that members may have in relation to that. The migration period for uh, existing payment services to this single payment service will run and commence from August 2021 to May 2022. And throughout the migration progress, the migration process, the department will continue to, to actively encourage, support and direct our customers to mainstream banking products wherever possible. The remaining pocket customers will be migrated in batches between August 2021 and May 2022. And those have started members um, around smaller benefits in the first instance and moving to larger benefits. And we've also commenced with some very focused campaigns, for example, in February, it was focused at the over 90s, etc. We do acknowledge that this, that this transformation and moving some of our customers um, to this new way of, of working is difficult. And in particular, those customers that are considered to be vulnerable. Um, the department's briefing paper also provides you further details on the range of support services which we are going to make available to customers, particularly those that are vulnerable during this migration process. DWP as a department have also created a, a vulnerable customer strategy to inform this work and, take, and we in Northern Ireland will be taking actions from that um, and targeted uh, follow-up calls to support um, our customers, indeed uh, direct calls, um, support calls through our Met the service and also referring customers for outreach visits um, for those that are not responding. Customers will have a range of pre and post supports uh, available to, to throughout the pro migration process to ensure that either they have access to payments through an existing or new mainstream account, or they move seamlessly to this new payment exception service. Post office staff are also engaged in this campaign and will be supporting vulnerable customers to convert to bank accounts uh, or additional signposting um, and explaining the migration process as well. The department is also engaging with a wide range of local stakeholders and representatives um, to ensure that, that those customers are kept informed of the plan changes. Um, this engagement activity will also be targeted in areas where migration would appear to be slower in some parts of Northern Ireland. And there's three particular areas that we will be focusing on um, over the next incoming months. Um, this will include, we are going to undertake a number of webinars and engagement sessions and we're commencing on on Monday with the Commissioner of the Older People, some of the advice sector organisations, voluntary and community sector organisations and political parties. And the first in the series of those, as I say, is on the 20th of June. Um, and other planned activities, including social media campaigns, information updates via Northern Ireland Direct, NI Direct, and the use of the DFC internet and departmental government channels will be the department. This project is at an advanced stage, remember, and the key objective of the department over the incoming month is to make the transition as seamless as possible for all of our customers. Um, I hope the committee, I found the briefing um, this morning, 
uh, informative and we are of course willing to answer any follow-up questions that you may have. We appreciate this as an area of interest um, to the committee and to the members um, and we are also planning to come back um, uh, to this committee following summer recess to ensure that you are kept up to date uh, with progress in relation to this project. Thank you. Thank you Linda, thank you for that and thank you for the update. Um, I, I'm glad to see the, the credit unions have been added to the list as well. I mean, I, I know um, very much Kelly has been championing this um, from a rural perspective, but certainly in an urban setting as well, this is going to pose the major issues um, with, with the, the, the lack of these accounts. I mean, I can think of, of my own area and, and just even my in DEA, where up until recently we had two banks, um, one in Rathcool and one in Club Fern Corner. And, but thankfully, we have two credit unions also, um, one in Rathcoole and one in Clubburn Corner, so that they will step in the breach. Only concern I have around there is um, some of our credit unions have opening hours that are not, you know, some of them are maybe only open for a couple of evenings a week, or you know, so that would be an issue. So it's maybe just to look at the opening hours of credit unions and how accessible that is um, for people. And I suppose then it's the issue of unintended consequences. I know everything we look at here in the Assembly when we're looking at bills and legislation, we have to look at the unintended consequences um, of that. And, and you, you talked about potential impacts. So I would be uh, very grateful, yes, if we could get further briefings uh, with this as, as we continue through that. Um, so just my only issue is just around credit unions and opening times, because certainly in a, I know in a more urban setting, I don't know about the rural side, but certainly in an urban setting, um, that the, the hours of those are can be quite staggered and they're not always uniform. Sorry, I just saw my hair there in, in the TV screen. Oh, what's going on there? Um, so uh, just, I only want to ask you to pick up on that. I'm going to open it up here because I know Kelly um, is waiting to come in. Any other members, if you want to ask questions, I really would appreciate if you would put your hands up sooner rather than later. Do you allow time for those questions to be asked, Kelly? Thank you very much, Chair, and thank you very much, um, Linda. Um, as Chair has said, um, I have been concerned because of the rural element. Um, I know when the, the, it was first muted about the, you know, the post office wasn't getting the contract, um, the issue was with access to banks in rural areas. To be honest, it's you know, 20 miles to the nearest bank and there's no, not very good public transport. Um, I was just wondering what discussions has there been with banks, um, especially when you mentioned there about the over 95s. I know with the older persons commissioner, I reached out to Eddie a while back because um, when an elderly person had gone to set up a bank account, they were asked for ID that they could not provide without actually spending quite a significant amount of money. So the person was in their 90s. They're not planning any foreign holidays. To be honest, they can't walk that well anymore. They give up the driving license 10 years ago um, so when they're look when they're look to be honest our electoral offices have all closed in local areas so you know where do they get this id from have we anything that we have in place with the banks that says to them we appreciate you have your money laundering rules and you have to get id but really we've got some elderly people some people with disabilities coming forward here who don't have a driving license don't have a passport um is there any way that we can have an agreement in Northern Ireland for this period of time in order for them to help people? Is that the banks appreciate that there are certain people who will not be able to provide from the lists that they say they have to use? And if there's a way that perhaps the department or government can step in to say, folks, we're changing the system here. They need to have a bank account. Help us with this. Okay, so look, thank you for that question. Um, in terms of the, the passport issue, I mean, we are engaging with... Um, 
DWP board um, across the UK are engaging with the banks across the piece. We understand this as a challenge. It is an issue that we're trying to address. Um, in terms of, of moving, as we move towards the transition out of the old post office accounts, I think the options that we have under the new scheme, um, either under the new payment exception service or the support, I mean, there's a lot of support in place, um, Kelly, to support people um, either through our own direct make a call helpline or actually across some of the other information lines that have been put in place um, by DWP. But I think in terms of, um, I suppose the key thing to say to, to uh, committee this morning is um, that there is a cover for everyone involved and in an event that somebody cannot, I mean, we will engage with the banks and we're as part of our stakeholder engagement, they are part of the stakeholder engagement we need to go forward with. But in terms of people accessing their funds or accessing their money, the, the, new, um, the new scheme does provide many benefits that the old scheme didn't have and that you know, it's obviously going to a bigger reach. So you're going from, from 29,000 outlets to 62,000. You can receive the new vouchers. So those that can't open a bank account for whatever reason will be able to receive this voucher either via a phone, via email, via voucher um, that they can go and cash at a number of, of, of additional outlets. So whilst our, our, and we will work um, in terms of refining any of those challenges that do arise, like um, ID and things like that, it is something that has been raised, um, as I say, centrally um, at the DWP board. And I'm, but I'm happy to take it forward as a, as a dedicated thing to look into for you. I think, I think it's, also, it's also maybe worth saying, Linda, that the, um, that the, new, the new payment exception service will also offer a card. So for those with a current post office card, they will simply have a, a different card and obviously there'll be uh, there'll be additional outlets. So from that twenty nine thousand to sixty three thousand. So in rural areas there should be greater coverage. Um, so hopefully those those customers in rural areas can access a greater number of services with a different card. I'd love you to come to my rural area and tell me where all the holes in the walls are because they don't exist anymore. <laughs> They've ripped them all out. Um, and the number of post offices have dwindled down. I now have a post office that works out of a part-time part out of a church. There's no hole in the wall. Um, so I just am concerned about that, um, the vouchers and this card now. Um, and the fact that quite a lot of the information is being provided via telephone and via online, honestly, you should go and talk to my dad. He can't even work his phone because his fingers are too big for the buttons. We are talking about people here who are quite vulnerable. They are unique. You know, there's there's plenty of people who will be able to transfer to a bank account, and hopefully they will do that very quickly. Um, but there are specifics, and I know that Eddie will probably bring that up with you. The other one that I've sort of got a bit of clarification on, and I just want to confirm this with you, I'm left with a situation with quite a number of rural dwellers who are older people, pensioners, who have disabled children. Those children are maybe in their 40s and 50s. Um, and up until now, they've been able to do, you know, local post office knows them, they've had an account set up for years. Um, now they're going to have to probably bring all of that together into one account and to be able to manage that better. Um, in doing that, there is a concern that the elderly person maybe has a few pounds kept away. Um, and I'm not talking about thousands here, we're talking about maybe five or six hundred pound maximum. Um, they're concerned that, you know, the whole thing about you can go into a bank account and you can see what's in the account and that's going to have an effect. But who's going to realise that it's actually two people's one, using the one account? How does that work then? Is there a protection there that means that there won't be mistakes made and people will have money deducted from them um, because they're, they're having to share an account? 
Okay, I'll maybe kick off on a couple of the points that, um, that you had said there, Kelly. One of them was around um, getting uh, remote access to the to the um, accounts. I think in terms of the the voucher, you don't because it's a pay point. Um, you don't necessarily need access to account okay. anymore, so people can still access that and have it as a separate a separate particular payment point for them, if if that's what they so call want. Um, it doesn't have to be open at the post office, but 99% of, of, of the vouchers and the access can still be accessed via the post office, but also in an increased number of networks um, as we go forward. Um, in terms of, um, yeah, so I think in terms of the majority of, of that, I think that would deal with the particular issue around the remoteness. In terms of the other issue you raised, which was about older people, and, and look, completely understand that, and there's a number of people with disabilities and older people that will not be able to transfer over or have concerns about transferring over. Um, our Make the Call team have been stood up. We are planning, we have resourced that up during um, the coming months. So we think that there will be an increase, um, as, the, as those letters have been out on the 1st of June, there will be an increase of people transferring over in the coming months. So what we have done internally is we have actually um, upsourced our Make the Call service, who will be not just able to make uh, take calls or do emails, but also will be able to go out and do physical visits to those that are particularly vulnerable or cannot have accessibility to some of the other, you know, either online or telephone calls. So that is in place and um, and we will ensure that we have that in place to deal with any any queries from any of our customers as we go forward, particularly those that are maybe, you know, immobile or are or, or of an elderly nature to try and cater for that as well. So um, we are very mindful for that in Northern Ireland and also very mindful that all of our customers are real customers as well. So, you know, we, we are and, and are used to the pattern of going to the local post, post office, but what I will say to you is, you know, they still will be able to access those accounts from their own post office. They still will be able to access all of the services from their post office, either via the new card or via the text um, code, you know, the, the code that they get, or, or via the voucher that they, they receive. So hopefully that will alleviate some of those challenges. Just in relation to that other point that, that Kelly makes about joint accounts, maybe I mean, we can follow that up with our, our colleagues in operations, because I think it's a very valid point that if there's more than one person on an account, that benefit has not been deducted an error from, from someone. So I'll follow that up, Kelly, and we'll, we'll provide some, some information on that to you in writing, if that's okay. Yeah, I'll declare an interest at this stage because I'm waiting for my dad to say, you take all my money and my and my disabled brother's money as well. And I'm like, no, <laughs> but because um, it's um, theirs. Um, I yeah. just, just in relation to that, I mean, there is no change in the government uh, method of payment policy on this at the minute. So customers can access as a result of an introduction of the new pay. So customers without access to a bank account um, can opt in and all the rest. And they can still appoint um, a close family member a close friend or a care if permission from that account holder has been given and agreement has been made uh, on how that money will deposited will be used so and if a customer also has uh, an appointee or a legal representative acting on their behalf of that claimant uh, the account should also uh, be in their name and they'll have access to all that customer's affairs so there is a little we have been doing quite a bit of work with DWP on this one Kerry because or Kelly because I think it is uh, one that is, but uh, the, the current policy that exists is the one that we are following around um, people having access to those those accounts. Yeah, because I think it's just there's more and more family members now, say, if, of somebody who's not on benefits, um, who's working, and they're being asked for their account to be used because they've had the ID, they've got the account set up, and it's a way up, sure, in Belfast or Newton Arts or whatever it is that the, account, the, the bank is. Um, and I know that there are people going, hold on, but I'm not on benefits. I don't want you to be 
you know, harmed because I have money in my bank or, you know, it, it cannot, it almost looks like we're going to have to have cost centers set up for some folk, my goodness. But no, thank you very much. Look, do you know what? I, I My heart's broke with this because the amount of folk who give off to me about their, they love their post offices after fighting to try and save them. They love their post offices. As you say, they will still be able to access their money through the post offices, just the account will be based elsewhere. And thankfully, the credit unions have been added to that. Um, my goodness, you couldn't get in some places more local contacts with folk and credit unions um, I know anytime I go near any of my credit unions I end up spending an hour talking about how everybody's families are so um, no thank you very much for that um, I, I would love to be a fly in the wall when you're talking to Eddie because I know that the Commissioner for Older People has been talking to banks and does talk to banks regularly and this issue about IDs ongoing all the time anyway but no honestly Linda and Roy thank you very much this is, this is going to be a bit of work coming up but we'll get there can I give you a wee bit of assurance, Kelly, in terms of we did a dedicated campaign in February this year and it was for over 90s. Um, and, you know, we sent out, we thought is, well, this will tell a tale in terms of our an older um, age group person going to struggle with this. And I suppose we didn't see any difference in the numbers converting during that month. Um, we were converting probably about 10, well, just under 20% of customers per month as we, in terms of the, the letters that are going out. Um, and I suppose what I'd say to you is um, in that particular campaign in February, there wasn't a difference in previous months where we did a general mail out. So people, um, but that doesn't take away. We are putting in place, as I say, the, the telephone, the email, the, the visits were required and that should customers relieve it. And what I would clearly say to any of the members is if you have people that are struggling, we do have a great um, variety of support in that there in place to assist them. And we're very happy. Um, if you want to redirect them towards that, I'm, we're happy to pick that up for you. Thank no you. problem. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, thanks, Kelly. I have one more member then that wants to come in, and that's Mark. If we could bring Mark in, please. Thank you, Chair, and thanks to Linda and Roy for, for coming on. I feel certainly much more assured after that presentation. I <laughs> wish we had got it <laughs> a year ago or, or more, but I know obviously things have been uh, changing uh, throughout. Uh, but in terms of me, me being assured that, that that's one thing, and it's, it's good to hear, I suppose, that, that things seem to be going a, a, a bit better now, or that, that there's no nothing jumping out at ease in terms of problems of, of people switching over. Well, I would say now that there is still a bit of confusion around the next steps. Now, I was in Belfast most of this week and wasn't in the office, but a couple of pensioners have contacted my office unaware of the extension of the contract. Some hadn't received letters, and, and, and you know, another one just ha hadn't understood it. But, but either way, despite your best efforts and your, 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 the efforts have been great, it just may not have been communicated clearly enough. And sometimes the hardest thing to do is to find the easiest way to do or, 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 or say something. I know that. I wonder, as well as the letters, obviously, going to claimants, had there been any sort of press release or, or stuff done out through local papers, who a lot of our older demographic uh, would read, and so would their families, because there might be people out there who are getting such a bluster when they see these letters coming in, you know, and are so fearful of the whole uh, of the whole transition that they just bury it, and, and, and they might have sons or daughters or other carers coming in who are oblivious to the fact that these letters have been received. And, they could actually help with the process. Okay. 
Um, thank you for that, Mark. Um, yeah, in terms of the, of the confusion, the, the project was sort of set down during COVID for about nine months, and it, it really has just resurrected itself up again in, in January, which is why there, you would have seen a, quite a bit of a lull in the project over the last year. Um, in terms of, of, it's one of the things we picked up internally um, in, the, in the department, the DWP have a, a national campaign, which is, um, you know, tweets, etc., and a lot of the online stuff, as you say, that's geared towards a particular demographic, not necessarily the elderly one. Um, we have recognised that there is a bit of a gap in Northern Ireland, and um, our customers are sl maybe slightly different, maybe slightly rural orientated, and maybe in, in some cases, maybe different age profile. Um, in terms of going forward, what we have put in place um, beginning and the beginning of June is a very, very dedicated campaign for the next three to six months, which clearly outlines some of the things that you've suggested um, and, a, and a variety of methods. One of them is around engaging with um, local stakeholders. I mean, in terms of one of the areas that is uh, that is um, that we are focusing in on, Mark, is actually your your um, your constituency, because um, in the BT Gorea there is a slower level of migration in that area, um, and there's two other areas across Northern Ireland that we're focusing on as well, and we're trying to pick those up with very dedicated and focused campaigns and media um, and marketing um, activities over the next three to six months. Those do include things like engaging, obviously, with local politicians locally, like yourselves, um, much more closely on some of the of the activities, but also um, some very localised campaigns, etc. And I suppose we are engaging with 70, 80 organisations across Northern Ireland, um, everything from your provinces, your CABs and things like that. So there will be a dedicated marketing campaign that you will start to see much more transfer, trans, you know, uh, I suppose a much more... Um, obviousness I suppose in the next in the next three to six months it'll be much more in your face than it has been over the last year and a half so we've taken that on board and we will be coming to your area there is we've started off that campaign last week as I say where we've done a lot more Twitter um, uh, activity last week we've done a wee bit more on Facebook etc but there is more campaigns and as I say we're starting a number of webinars and engagement sessions next week um, with a range of other um, stakeholder and support organisations that are there supporting the key people that you're that you're referring to. So there is a number. We have a, a, a marketing and communications plan in place to tackle some of that challenge that you that you've just outlaid. No, no, that that's great, Linda, and, and key to this too, I suppose, is reinforcing the importance to Royal Mail of them having their staff fully briefed and aware because I think that became a, a, an issue as well that, that they didn't seem to be briefed effectively on the extension. Okay, yeah. thank I you. Think, I think that particular um, activity has happened, Mark, um, in May and June. Um, there has been a campaign directly with the post office to upskill them in terms of what has been transferring over and the new MOVO scheme that's coming on board in August. Um, and also um, helping people to transfer over or migrate over to new accounts. So there has been a very dedicated exercise um, with post office and uh, the post office account um, holders net over the last um, few weeks to, in relation to that. So hopefully you'll see that improve um, in the incoming months. Okay. Thank you. Thanks, Mark. Thank you. No other member is wishing to ask questions. So can I just then thank you, Linda and Roy. Roy, that's some view that you have behind you there. Um, must be great to look out at that. Um, thank you so much for briefing us today, and um, imagine we'll have you back in again then in early autumn um, to give us an update about how things are progressing. So thank you for today. Thank you very much. Thank, thank you. Bye bye. Bye bye.
Okay, members, we have already completed agenda item 10, so I'm going to move us on to agenda item 11, which is our forward work programme. Next, next week's meeting, we will be briefed on post-COVID recovery. So we will have uh, Hospitality Ulster, Sports NI and the Arts Council. And we'll also receive a departmental briefing on the private tenancies bill. Um, I'll then move on to agenda item 12, which is any other business. Can I ask members, have you any other business at this stage? Hey. Who do you see? Alex, sorry. Yeah, Chair, um, I've been approached by the, the networks um, who've asked um, if it's possible for them to come to the committee just to let the, the committee know about all the issues they've been having over the last year and a bit uh, with COVID and stuff and, and what they're up to. So I was hoping if we could maybe invite them to the committee. Um, I'm happy to do it after the summer, if that's who, possible. Who again was that, Alex, that wants to come in? Who was it? That was the Arts Network, Kathy Polly. You'd know her, Kelly, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Arts right. Community Network. Arts Community yeah. Network, okay. No, that's fine. No, certainly, Alex, we will um, get that information off you. One of the clerks will give you a shout, and sure we'll get that information okay. off you. Um, and we can see if we can um, fit them in as well. Kelly, you, any other business? I uh, just wanted to ask, it was actually going back to a piece earlier on today when mentioned about the programme for government. Can we maybe write to the department to ask them um, how, um, you know, one of the programme for government outcomes is we have a caring society that supports people throughout their lives. But as it was brought up earlier, this cross -cut is a cross-cutting theme across health infrastructure, everything. I'm just wondering, can we get an update from the department on the programme for government? I know it's a draft programme for government outcomes to see um, how that's progressing now, not for now, but for after the summer. Yeah, we can certainly do that as well. Yes. Any other business anybody wants to bring up? Nope. Okay. I'm going to move on. All right, then we'll move on to... I don't have another page after that for some reason. That's okay. I assume then... The date and time of next meeting is our next part, yeah. which will Thank be uh, next Thursday here in, that's the 1st of July, I think it is, yes. or 2nd of July, 1st of July, um, here in room 29. Do we have a time that we want to start at next week? 9.15. 9, 9.15. You're getting an extra 15 minutes next week. So we're going to start at 9.15 next week. Uh, well done, everybody. We've got through six briefings there. In, in, in four hours, so well done and thank you for your time today. Thanks everyone. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 29. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 29.